Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bond by Numbers. Today, we are going to take Bond and put him into Canada, our home and native land, you might say. This this very special episode is, um, is, is a bit of a creation project, wouldn't you say, gents? Oh, I would say so. Yes, it's a, uh, it's a creative activity. Uh, I would definitely say that. Um, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. Like a choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah. Only, only, exactly. we've, only we've made it. We haven't cho chosen it. We've, well, we've... we chose it out of our imagination. That's true. Out of our own brain addicts, we did. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But regardless, though, like, there's no alternative. But there's no. But the difference, though, Jeff, is that, like, there's no alternative, like, side story. That is, side stories, are, yeah. Where the character, exactly. where, the, where Bond is killed or something <laughs> because of some stupid d decision that he makes. Well, you haven't or heard the book. You haven't heard my stories. Well, yeah. Maybe he does. <laughs> Maybe he does die. Maybe he does die. Um, but w once again, thank you very much for joining us. Today's episode is all about having fun. It's all about uh, unleashing a bit of creativity. You know, the three of us have been talking and working Bond for a long time as part of this wonderful online James Bond community. Um, and we just decided, because Bond had never been to Canada before, wasn't a time that some story ideas, some treatments uh, placed him there, placed our eponymous hero in our home and native land. And indeed, that's what we've done. We've each gone away over the last three weeks. We took an extra week, didn't we, guys, to kind of flush out our ideas? Among other things, yes, uh, absolutely. Among other things. things flushed out. Abs well, okay, <laughs> I won't get too deeply into that, BFG. <laughs> I'll let you talk about your flushings in your own time and your own podcast. what we're talking about, but I, I, have a, I have an idea. Yeah, yeah, you were roommates with him for a while, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yes I was. Anyway, I jest, I jest. Uh, but yeah, we've what was it? Episode forty-six, right? The last time we met, and we talked about, um, or we selected bonds randomly. Jeff, you had first pick, and you went for Brosnan. I did. Yeah, and Josh had second pick, and he chose Connery. And I had third pick, and I went with Roger Moore. Now, uh, as as we share our stories today. I will probably confess to you that I was thinking more about uh, Dalton <laughs> as I did this. Uh, I had to rework some things to make it a little bit more in my mind, but huh. I, I feel really, really good at the outset here about what I've created. How do you guys feel? I feel pretty, uh, yeah, like I, I, I feel pretty one, good. I didn't want to make this all Canadiana content, you know, mm -hmm, so I decided mm -hmm. to kind of work Canada in as a location into the story and see how it worked. Yeah, so sure. Like, I think it turned out all right. Um, it was a bit tricky getting like the first and second acts of my synopsis together because mm -hmm. uh, I really because you really it's really that part at, at the, after the opening sequence where where the story begins and you got to figure out how you trace where Bond gets to one place <laughs> to another yeah, yeah and where he's following the villains without trying to be or trying to and if you try too hard to avoid being um, cliche I guess you could say or mm -hmm. formulaic you lose the Bond feel very quickly. And then, and that's unfortunate part of the formula is mm -hmm. that, you know, there are certain tropes that a Bond film has and you want to make it feel like a Bond movie, but you also want to make it feel a little different at yeah. the same time. Yeah, quite right. Jeff? Uh, it's funny, I had a bit of writer's block for quite some time, but then when I, uh, I ended up coming up with my idea, it, it kind of flowed. It's uh, it's gonna be better than Die Another Day. I don't know how much better. Um, I, I think but, mine uh, will too. Yeah. All right, gents. So just before we get into our feature of the episode, our um, our shared stories for James Bond and whatnot, let's uh, let's just talk about what's been going on in the world of Bond. We have lost two magnificent actors, two very yes. big names within the Bond community, haven't we? That's true. 
Uh, yeah. First, we have uh, Dame Diana Rigg, rest in peace. Uh, she passed away, um, 82 years old, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. Yeah, she passed away very suddenly of cancer. But I read that, you know, her family, she was around her family, and I, she was comfortable, apparently, up until the end. So I'm, gl- I'm glad that. Um, I'm glad she was able to finish her arc on uh, uh, Game of Thrones Game as of well. Thrones, yeah. She managed to bow her way out of that before that yeah, fell, that exactly. all fell, fell apart. Mm-hmm. Opinions differ on good. that. But uh, <laughs> let's just say that she was one of the best things about the show. Um, oh, she was. But uh, we also love her, you know, from like the Avengers. Yes. Uh, just to her as a feminist icon as well. Uh, also, her in uh, Midsummer's Night's Dream was great too. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I love her in that. Show. Good, good, good show. Did she play Titania? Uh, or who? Yeah, she play... yeah. Uh, yeah. Honestly, I can't remember yeah. the character. I just remember watching it. She was in that too, if I'm not she mistaken. She was. She was. Yeah. They're both in it. Yeah. Okay. You're right. Yep. And of course, Michael Lonsdale, Hugo Drax. Yeah, that's that's Hugo a Drax. shame. Man, I love that guy. Great mm-hmm. actor, Day of the Jackal. Um, yeah. Ronin. Jackal, Ronin, mm-hmm. uh, Munich, mm-hmm. even as well. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, he was great in Munich. Yep. Yeah, it's like the father of uh, Dominic Green in, yeah, in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Which also um, featured Daniel Craig. But it yeah, did, yeah. Yeah, oh, doing, the Kevin, yeah. doing the Kevin Bacon there a little bit. Yeah, uh, bringing true. it back as well, I guess you could say. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. we lost we yeah. lost those two actors and um lights, sure. And in addition, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh regarding the No Time to Die date and if it was going to be pushed back. I think, you know, with Tenant released in the cinema and having certainly not not earning what it would normally, but uh I, I I can't see, or I can now see perhaps more than I did before the possibility that this this does get its its release. I did always think it would have a limited release with the streaming option before Christmas, but I think maybe now it it will stay put. I mean, what do you guys think? What's your feeling? I don't know. I think they should just change the name of the movie to No Time to Release. <laughs> no Time to Release, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that also has connotations in there, too. Um, <laughs> it does, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely For pigs like you, Josh. It's going to change the rating of the film. Yes. Uh, definitely, yeah. NC-17, I don't know. Um, just going forward, though, like, because Don't Tend to Die is slotted for November still. Yeah. Now competition has lessened because the big uh, Disney Marvel film, Black Widow, is mm-hmm. now being pushed to, uh, I believe it's May 2000. That's right, yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. So all it, all, it, all it has up against it really is, uh, I think, Wonder Woman 84 and uh, Dune if Dune mm-hmm. isn't pushed back either. So it's hard yeah. to say. It is really hard to say because right now, as as we record this, we, we're I think it's fair to say we're entering the second spike that we, um, you know, that we've been expecting. Ottawa definitely yeah. is, uh-huh. sure. With schools back now in Britain, um, you know, university students returning to dorms, there are lockdowns all over the nation now and restrictions yeah. have just come in to bring us back closer to where we were five, four or five months ago. So I, I think that um, it's going to be tougher for people to get out. But at the same time, as you say, Josh, if, if, if studios continue to hold back um, release dates on their on their big films, then Bond will have less to compete with. But I, at this stage, I don't know that it's a money making enterprise anymore, is it? I mean, they're going to make their money off it over time. I think that the whole idea of the cinematic release within theaters is it's really just 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 to do it, you know, just to do it. It's not yeah. to it's not seen as what it was. There's not going to be a no. premiere. There's not going to be no. that sort of thing. So, and, and think about it now yeah. too, like if. Even if they find, even if I, I'm sure eventually they will get a vaccine for the coronavirus, 
but well, that's, one hopes. now but now we realize this is that like it just goes to show how one virus can cripple and like the economy mm-hmm. yeah. of the entire world it can put everything on hold yeah. so i mean yeah we're going to get the vaccine for this coronavirus but what about the next mm-hmm. virus that appears and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth right like we have we're realizing now and now that we got to keep be, we got to be able to i guess kind of like the bond films in a mm-hmm. way trend jump in order to keep keep yeah. the, mm-hmm. the legacy alive keeping things going you know what i mean very much and we are kind of like the fallout victims of a bond villain aren't we right now we're yeah. we're it's well, something that's that's it's sure. all about contingency plans it's like everyone we, like the thing is is having having a pandemic like this is has made everyone kind of figure out there has to be a contingency plan for Everything. every walk yeah. of life yeah you're right where it's like how do i work uh, you know, it's like, how do I play? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. you know, all these things like that we would do for, um, you know, uh, recreation. It's like, well, in, in large groups, what are you going to do? Like karaoke's out of the picture unless you do it, you know, virtually. That's right. Uh, or, or going to the theater. Like all these things where people go, we have to find different ways of getting around it. Like we're, we were getting used to the status quo of, of being like that. And then, so it's just it's something we're going to have to adjust to. And the world, obviously we can adapt. But uh, it's something that, you know, it's just we have to play by ear. And unfortunately, it's it's really tough going back and forth, whereas it was getting better than we It's a one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. But yeah, but it's it's going to get better. But right now it's, it's it doesn't not, look yeah. like that. No, it doesn't. Well, I, I think the world needs some escapism. And I think oh, that's, it I, does. I think, I think what we have on the menu today is mm-hmm. just what the world needs right now. <laughs> Because we know the whole world is listening to our podcast, right? <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Well said, Josh, and uh, good good way of bringing us back. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, more has been happening in the Bond community. We're aware of that. There's lots of great shows, podcasts, and other uh, blogs and, uh, you know, video blogs and things that we know you guys are checking out, same as we are. So, by all mm-hmm. means, check those things out. One of one of them, though, one of the podcasts I'd like to plug, it's a new one, uh, Dr. Lisa Funnel. She's an associate professor at University of uh, Oklahoma. She's got, she's, she's big into gender studies and feminism within the Bond and cinematic world she's got a new podcast that i'm looking forward to checking out as well and uh, i might nice. also plug tim uh, jacconi's uh, no time to bond podcast he, he started it with his dad a while back i know that's uh, that's quite a good one and of course pete brooker and matt spazier are still doing their suits yes. of james bond podcast so lots of great then, stuff out there to listen to and to uh, to take part in yeah so thanks josh for bringing us back on that wavelength and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Without further ado, let, let's get back then, shall we, and uh, and present the audience with our three James Bond pitches. I've, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. Rubs hands together enthusiastically. <laughs> let's get into it, guys. Um, let, let's just get right into it, okay? Uh, we've got three different synopsis to go through here. We decided to work in reverse so that I would go first with uh, reading out my story idea, my treatment. Um, then we would move on to Josh, and then we move uh, over to you, Jeff, to have the last word. And we set for ourselves the task of, of make, making sure that we situated our own creative ideas within the world and the time frame and the era of the Bond. So, for example, we couldn't transplant, in my case, Roger Moore to the 2010s. He would have he would have to remain a product exactly. of the story, a product yeah. of its time. Of the, but, you, but with Roger Moore, though, you get a, a wide berth. You get the 70s yeah, and Yeah, 80s. that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. You know, so, so you uh-huh. can choose what Roger Moore era. With Connery, I'm stuck mm-hmm. in that, like, <laughs> well, Connery not really. periods. Yeah, you get uh, well early, you get early cool Connery, like you get cool Connery, is, yeah, and then you and then you get like uh, tired Connery, I guess you could say. Well, yeah, you get the hangover from the '60s to like '71, right? So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So, what about 83? Doesn't he also get the uh, oh, Never Say Never oh, yes, Connery? But, okay, Not official fine. Eon, but... Yes, but yeah. I was going... My product... Yeah, sure. My film is an official Eon product, thank you very much. Okay, oh, all right, excellent. It was somehow made between 1960... It was basically like, I had to squeeze in, like, it took a year to make this film... And like, how could that possibly happen? <laughs> but I think I figured out how it could have been done. So good guys. Listen, for my part, I'm really excited to hear your story ideas. I feel like mine's been with me for a few weeks now. It's been growing. It's obviously treated out into 10 or so pages here, a text that I'm going to take you through. Uh, I, I do hope you sit back. I do hope you relax and you enjoy it because that's exactly what I'm going to do when I listen to you guys. I am so stoked to hear what you have brought to the James Bond creation table. I think, um, I think our love of Canada was going to drive us to this at some point it's wonderful that we've got the context and and, and the experience to do it and uh, yeah you guys listen to it at home uh hope you enjoy it it's it's just a bit of fun among the three of us but maybe there will be an idea in here that is worth pitching on a more serious level i'm very doubtful <laughs> very uh, very doubtful we shall see. for my story we but see. we'll see <laughs> let's begin gentlemen shall we let's begin yeah, i'm let's do i'm bringing you to 1976 okay and my story's title is Goodwill, goodbye. Oh, I like it. Goodwill, goodbye. Now, although I am going to be reading you different sections of the story, the treatment I have created, uh, I would just like to issue a caveat, if indeed that's the right word here, for all of our stories, on behalf of all of us, that um, the fine points of our stories haven't been worked out in screenplay. The dialogue is not constructed properly. This is um, very much a rough, rough go through things with the hope the hope that um, a finer pen than our than my own at least would uh, would would write the the words and the action. So, hmm. I offer you goodwill, goodbye. The pre-titles. Gun barrel leads into an establishing shot of the majestic Hotel McDonald in Edmonton, Alberta. It's late in October. The first snows threaten the north of Canada. The camera enters a suite where we see Bond clinking glasses with a beautiful woman on the balcony overlooking the Saskatchewan River. He feels a slight pulse in his ear as he raises his glass for a drink and listens to the incoming message from his invisible earpiece. It's from Felix, lighter of course, who's downstairs in the ballroom surrounded by a consortium of white, black, and bolo-tied dignitaries. A speech is about to commence. Bond makes his apologies to his date and promises to return soon. No sooner has he shut the door behind him that we see the woman empty her champagne glass over the balcony and retrieve her own concealed device from underneath her dress. Uttering Kazakh into the small transistor, the subtitles offer us the translation, he's on his way. And remember, you'll need two men. There could be no mistakes. Bond, meanwhile, takes the elevator down, checking his tie and adjusting his cuffs, but noticing in the mirrored doors the unmistakable droplets of sweat forming on his brow. He exits the lift and joins Lighter in the ballroom. Bond is handed a scotch and soda, but doesn't drink it. Instead, his eyes are focused on a charismatic figure slowly making his way to a head table among the din of conversation. The two friends stand near the back, and Felix shares small talk about the assignment, asking Bond as they wait for a keynote speech to begin. Felix mentions something about the dangerous scent that Bond's following, and Bond returns with the justification of MI6 having already lost two agents to this individual. It's here that we learn a little more about the keynote speaker. His name is Stefan Lopakin, a Russian-born Canadian oligarch, industry magnate, and celebrated humanitarian. 
With his profits, Lopikin's enterprise avows to find solutions to world problems and is currently turning its profits from petroleum export into humanitarian aid for the developing world. However celebrated his growing philanthropy, his activities have been linked to the death of two Commonwealth agents. As such, MI6 has sent Bond to attend an energy conference at the luxurious Hotel McDonald in Edmonton to get close. Posing as Hollis York Addison, an oil and gas executive from a subsidiary of Universal Exports, P&G, looking to purchase further investment in the Athabascan oil sands, Felix Leiter is at the same conference tracking someone entirely different, a Texan stakeholder who's about to be done for tax evasion. Bond begins to feel unwell and excuses himself from the conversation. His vision starts to blur as he reaches the washroom and he's pursued by large, well-dressed men. Before he's clubbed out, these men grab him and lead him under the pretense of his intoxication to a service elevator. Bond wakes to the sharp burn of smelling salts and stinging slaps. He finds himself roughed up and hand-roped, facing an early sunrise upon a metal refinery pipe of the Athabascan oil sands refinery, some four hours north of Edmonton. The wind cuts coldly through his dinner shirt. Onto the platform walks that same charismatic man who Bond and Felix had been waiting for in the ballroom to give a speech a few hours ago. He's accompanied by two thick men who might have been handsome had it not been for the fatigue and heavy breath that marked their appearance. It was evident that they had been the ones lifting his body up to this great height. Lopakin, says Bond. Mr. James Bond, replies the man. At the refinery site, Bond and Lopakin exchange threats, but Lopakin holds all the cards. He tells Bond that like the other two agents who have gone missing, he too will be untraceable, or unable to be found alive at least. Flanked by his henchmen, Bortsov and Balakin, Lopikin tells Bond that a small branch of his business involves clearing land for development, and he just so happened to have this job left, an old refinery that had outlived its industriousness, a bit like him. He bids Bond farewell and walks away, back down the platform to the lift. Bond is left sitting up, but tied tightly to a pipe running perpendicular above him. The sun continues to rise across the cold, clear Albertan sky. When he reaches the bottom of the lift, Lopakin instructs a small ground crew to ensure the blast covers the entire site. He leaves Bortsov behind to supervise the explosives, then drives off in a bottle green Chrysler New Yorker. From his vantage, Bond watches the car disappear across the horizon and the crew begin to set the wires. The fresh Canadian air, combined with legitimate fear, helps Bond shake off the remaining fuzziness from the drug and tests the ropes tying his wrists together. There's not much slack to be found. Though Lopikin's men removed his PPK, Bond is amazed to discover the polished chrome of his Rolex Submariner shining at him just above his left cocktail cuff. That famous timepiece is still there. He immediately sets to work instinctively, manipulating what little room he has between the wrists to activate the buzzsaw with his opposite hand's pinky and cut the ropes which held his hands fast. While he works, Bond fails to notice two crewmen who spot his attempt to escape from the level below. Armed, they sound the alarm to Bortsov, who orders them up the steep ladders to reach him. Freed just in time, Bond acts on his only option and grabs the ladder's rails with both hands, sliding vertically down the drop, surprising the climbing man and kicking one in the face and over the side of the pipe where he falls to his death. As for the other, he and Bond land in a heap on the platform below and fight with 007 knocking him out. Bond steals his assault rifle and starts running across the perilous pipeline. By now, attention of the ground crew has been fully drawn and Bond is under fire. As the first bullets ricochet off nearby metal, Bortsov heads for another metal staircase to intercept Bond. He fires shots upward through the maze of pipes and starts to climb, reloading as he goes. 007 is a moving target, shielded by pipework. 
Through a series of jumps, slides, and ducks, he evades being shot and reaches a communications hut into which he bursts and takes cover. A flurry of more shots bounce off the hut, and one breaks a window above him as he drops to the ground. Before he can reconnoiter the environment or formulate a plan, Lopikin's man, Bortsov, enters the hut and seizes Bond by the waist in what feels like one swift move, then throws him backwards in an impressive Greco-Roman hold. Fortunately, the throw lands Bond close enough to the open door for him to scramble to his feet in pain and run. Bortsov charges after him but stops momentarily to scream for the shooting from below to stop and for the crew to complete their rigging. The delay buys Bond just a precious second or two's advantage, and he uses it all to bolt around a right corner and continue his blind run. There's no plan, only flight response. In his weakened state, combat's unthinkable. The Kazakh now pursues Bond alone over a hundred feet above the ground on a network of horizontal pipes. The sun has now reached higher on the horizon and casts the sight with equal parts, shadow and glare. Bond turns again in his speed, eventually reaching the end of the gantry and the refinery's whole structure, marked at this spot by a waist-high rail. Beyond the rail there is only a drop and certain death. The sound of Bortsov's clanking footsteps grows louder as Bond panics in search of an option. There's only one. Secured to the scaffolding is a disused fire station which houses a coiled hose. Bond breaks the glass and grabs a nozzle first, snakes a few meager lengths of hose around his right forearm, and turns round. Bortsov is bearing down on him. Bond takes a good look at the face, then smiles and falls backward over the rail. The hose reel issues a scream of alarm as the weight of Bond's body in freefall forces it to spin much faster than its design intended. Holding firm to this umbilical cord, Bond plummets down the side of the refinery, hoping for at least 50 feet, leaving Bortsov at the rail staring down. Estimating correctly, halfway to the ground the hose jerks tight and swings Bond horizontally enough to reach an adjacent gangway. With his left arm, he grabs the outer rail and climbs up and over. In three swift moves, he's back on another platform of pipes, this one heading straight for their stairwell that will bring him to the ground. Somewhere above him, the sound of footsteps hammers out. Bond descends at breakneck speed and bowls over the first of two crewmen working on the rigging by jumping on him near the bottom. Bond disarms him of his Beretta M92 and shoots the other man in the leg, maiming him. Finally on the ground, 007 surveys the site as shots register nearby. Some hundred yards ahead of him sit three pickup trucks outfitted with canvas tops and a black jeep wagoneer. Bond estimates that the small crew can't number more than nine men, but he doesn't intend to stay and fight or count. Instead, he gambles on survival and decides to run for the vehicles. If they don't provide escape, they'll at least provide cover. He fires two rounds behind him and starts to run. His teeth set, Bond sprints across the no-man's land towards the convoy of parked vehicles. A shot from the right sirens past him and rips through the canvas top of the nearest truck. Bond fires blindly behind him and drives the last five yards, hitting the ground and rolling between two trucks. In the cab of the nearest truck, he finds another Beretta and grabs it instinctively, but there's no keys left anywhere. The Wagoneer is his last hope. Bond fires two more shots through the side window of the truck before bolting out of it and headlong for the jeep. Fewer bullets are fired at the vehicles, their only way out of this wasteland, Bond supposes, but a ruckus of busy feet and shouting fill the air instead. Putting all of his money on black, Bond quickly perforates the front tires of the three pickup trucks before darting into the jeep and just hoping for luck blindly. Mercifully, it's a royal flush. The keys dangle waiting in the ignition. Bond starts the engine with force and all eight cylinders scream to acceleration as dust, dirt and sand spray up from the ground and the jeep starts its sidewinding escape. In the rearview mirror, Bond sees Bortsov and the crew gather by the pickups and take aim. One shot hits the tow bar and another puts out the back window, but neither stop James Bond from making his escape. Bond looks down at the passenger seat and sees a clean, black attaché case staring back at him. It wasn't meant for him, but is now the property of Her Majesty's Secret Service. 007 smiles to himself as he tunes the radio and speeds south down the highway. 
pre-title sequence over. That leads into my title song, sung by Paul Anka. <laughs> uh, going for Paul Anka, yeah, 1970. That's not who I, not who I thought you would say, to be honest no. with you. Well, I hope, as you guys will see, my story demands a big voice, like a Tom Jones, yes. Thunderbolly sort of thing. As, as, so you want a, a Canadian Tom Jones, Paul Anka, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The one. Yeah, and if, nice. you're ta if you're taking notes, there's a song from uh, an album that he did in 1977 called Mexican... Uh, I think the album's called The Music Man. The song's called Mexican Nights. Now, it's, it's not the type of... It's not the song I want, obviously, but it's that sort of feel, okay? It's, it's a big song. It's a, it's, a, it's a big song. So, yeah, that's my pre-title sequence. We, we can pause here if you want to have a little chat. You got any questions for me about that? Uh, I just have to say that's the most action I think Roger Moore has ever done <laughs> in, in, in his entire career. I know. In, in one opening more, sequence. This is how we know that this is fan fiction. No. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Yeah. Well, you got it right there, guys. I think that's the same thing my wife said to me when I read that to her as well. I asked her to proof it, and she's like, yeah, this is already more exciting than most of the Roger Moore pre-title sequences. That's not better. It's not better. It's just... And you can see, I think, maybe why... I, you know, I want I want a more film, and I think that's that's kind of part of what this is, right? I want a Roger Moore film that that shows him in that role a little bit more. And yeah. I was also quite deliberate with my story, at least. I wanted one of the villains to show himself fully at the beginning, and sure. I decided that's to a, work that into the story, just a little something that, different. That's a cool trope breaker. I like that. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was. I loved the use of Athabasca. I knew for some reason. I said, Mama, he's going. He's going to Athabasca. He's going to. Ath yep, he <laughs> totally is. I just uh, knew it was going that direction. Well, you know, guys, um, I was thinking, right? 1976. The the energy crisis is still very much part of the world, and next to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, well, I guess the Solex agitator didn't. Yeah, the Solex well. agitator <laughs> didn't. No, but I mean, the, the Athabascan oil sands are the the, the third largest reserve on Earth, yeah. and kind of untapped, at least in terms terms of certainly not the world's knowledge but in terms of its media representation i think so oh, I, 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 I can see this this kind of suit and so far but i yeah. should also say uh as, as i continue to thank you for listening to the story that not all sections have been written out like that okay there's there's yeah. several that are just shorter than that as you're yeah. going to as you're going to see so shall we continue post titles london yes yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was going to say also, yeah, too, yeah. before you, one more thing. The Athabasca thing also made me think of uh, that season four two-parter in the middle of season four of the X-Files, that two-parter. Yeah, yeah. Right? Tunguska with the, Turma. With, with, with the Black Cancer, right? Yeah, Tunguska yeah. Turma, exactly. Yeah. Oh, good yeah. episodes, man. Good, good like, episodes. With, with that Russian, that old Russian dude uh -huh. that comes in and takes care of everything at the end, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Krychek with his arm and all that stuff. Post titles, London. Two weeks have passed. Action starts with Bond safely back in London, debriefing M on the Canadian conference and moving on to inquire about the contents of the attaché case. M explains that the case contained a number of shipping ledgers and records for a container ship called the Ustinov, registered to a Kazakh-based firm. The ship, currently en route to Tunisia from New York, is reportedly carrying an inventory of goodwill and foodstuffs for the North African market. Documents indicate that the ship made similar trips over the past four years, each taking the expected routes and times between 10 and 20 days. Bond asks a more pertinent question. Why would a figure as well known as Lopakin risk exposing himself like he did back in Canada at the oil refinery unless he knew we were onto him? He brazenly admitted to killing those agents. Whatever was going on, things were more personal. 
The foreign minister is also in attendance and thinks that Bond should be taken off the mission now as his cover is blown and they'll be expecting him to intercept the ship by following the lead to Tunis. In a bold move, however, M disagrees and reasons that Bond is the best one to keep going as he's seen Lopikin's operation already in action and he might even use that notoriety as a double bluff, deliberately drawing Lopikin out into the open where his behaviors can be more easily traced. It's a dangerous and calculated risk, but Bond agrees. M instructs Bond that he must follow this lead to Tunisia, but that his access to North Africa will be through Sicily, enabled through the help of their Italian friends. He has a five-day lead on the Ustinov and needs to use all of it to prepare for the job. M has already secured the cooperation of the Italians and briefed their intelligence. Bond will need an alias and Port Authority clearance, which will be arranged for him upon arrival in Sicily. He will also be given a replacement submariner. In typical M fashion, Universal Exports have already booked him on a 2 p.m. flight to Rome. Sicily. In Catania, Bond is reunited with Agent Caruso. You might remember her as a lovely Italian agent at the start of Live and Let Die. She guides him from the airport through the busy streets of Catania and north along the A18 in her Alfa Romeo Spider to the picturesque hill town of Terramina, nestled at the foot of Mount Etna. It's here that Bond spends three days and two nights with Caruso. On her own turf, Caruso is assertive and dynamic, nothing like the sheltered girl that hid in the closet. Bond happily plays second fiddle to her knowledge and expertise. The attraction is mutual, and there's no doubt where it will lead, again. This understanding is fun and shared equally by the two professionals. We get a feel that perhaps, in another world, these two might actually work as a couple. But in the end, both are lone wolves, too hungry for the forest. Nevertheless, Caruso and Bond enjoy the nightlife and day scenery as they share what intel they have on Lopikin. In addition to his role in the oil and gas industry, profits from which go into humanitarian aid projects, Lopikin is also a holder in select breweries, cafes, and restaurant chains. Each have been checked out, and each appear clean. She confesses that there's not much the Italians have dug up on Lopikin, beside what's already known to his own government and their partner agencies. His story appears as airtight as his security. Bond then spends time absorbing his cover. He'll be posing as third officer on the freighter Olio Verde out of Palermo on a 12-hour crossing to Tunis. He has the authority clearance to stay with the boat in Tunis for 36 hours only, but this will be more than enough time for him to intercept the Ustinov, which Caruso's department assures him is on schedule and arriving the morning after he'll get there. Once in the port of Tunis, however, he'll be on his own to pick up Ustinov's scent. Bond departs from Palermo with the Sicilian crew, and with the exception of a few drinks with the sailors, he spends the majority of the day in his quarters familiarizing himself with the Port of Tunis blueprint. Updated shipping reports from the Italians confirm the scheduled arrival of both his vessel and the Ustinov. He stays on board to sleep. Tunis, Tunisia. Early the next morning, Bond uses binoculars to trace the arrival of Lopikin's ship. He disembarks the Olio Verde to get a closer look once the cranes begun unloading the Ustinov's cargo. By negotiating the terrain, Bond nears a fleet of articulated transport trucks that are now being fed the marked barrels of wheat and food aid from Canada. Carrying only his concealed PPK and the rucksack forming part of his cover aboard the Palermo freighter, Bond nears closer the trucks. Amid the trailers being loaded by small ground crew, Bond notices Lopikin's two heavies, Bortsov and Balakin, lingering. He sneaks underneath one of the trailers and plants a tracking device. He then slips away from the docks, dons a headscarf, and heads into the Medina district of Tunis. Walking deep among the mosques, shops, and market stalls of the ancient city centre, Bond turns over his Rolex to read an inscribed address under the face. He continues walking but stops eventually before a stall selling rugs and slips behind a curtain of fabric into the room below. 
Inside a small concealed portico, Bond removes his scarf and warmly utters the phrase, I prefer Earl Grey in the afternoon, to the Tunisian sitting beside a desk. The man smiles and leads Bond further through the back, announcing his arrival to none other than Q, who sits working in a small lab. After the customary pleasantries, Q equips Bond with a transistor so that his movements may be traced by headquarters and a set of night vision binoculars. The two then walk to the rooftop of the secluded Q branch building and enjoy a modest lunch of fig-sweetened tagine and red wine. The friendship between the two figures is evident as they dine in the afternoon sun. After eating, Q shows Bond his newly outfitted Mercedes G-Class 4x4, a luxury desert vehicle with concealed automatic guns, tracing technology, reinforced blast and body shields, an extra fuel tank, night vision scopes, and a self-destruct timer. So long as he survives whatever is out there in the desert, this vehicle is designed to get him in and out. Bond activates the dashboard's tracking mechanism, picks up the convoy signal, and leaves the safety of the Medina, traveling south through the Atlas Mountains and towards the open Sahara. It's growing dark and cold by the time he stops, some five hours later, near an outcrop just outside the town of Duz. He'd been keeping five miles between himself and the track trailer for most of the afternoon, but now it's slowed to a halt. Bond exits his 4x4 and watches the convoy through his scope as the vehicle passes through a checkpoint gatehouse guarded by a single figure and into a fortified desert compound comprised of three large hangars and a smaller circular building, a living quarters or a barracks of some kind perhaps. The line of trucks enter one at a time and disappear into one of the hangars. Bond waits a few moments before covering his ride a kilometer away and sneaking up to the gatehouse. His plan is to neutralize whoever's working at the checkpoint and take it from there. This would be an inch-by-inch inch plan. Rarely has he stepped so willingly into stacked and dangerous territory. He reaches the booth, and through the window can see the reflected light of a small black-and-white black television set. The guard's back is to him as he watches a football match. Bond chaps on the door, slides to the side, and executes a perfect judo chop, incapacitating the guard. Just then, another truck drives at the booth. The driver exits the cab and approaches. A voice shouts at Bond to get in immediately. It's a woman's voice. Startled, Bond exits the gatehouse and follows the figure into the truck. Once inside, a striking woman flashes angry brown eyes at him. You idiot, she exclaims. You are going to ruin this entire operation. Bond remains confused, uncertain as to who this woman is, but he's growing more intrigued. The initial threat of her appearance has certainly softened. I'm sorry, he offers. I haven't yet had the pleasure of... No, you haven't. You damn British are all the same. Where are your documents? What was your plan here, exactly? Just to walk up and knock on the door? Her accent, now that they were inside the cab, was clearly French to Bond's ears. But whether that was learned in North Africa or not, Bond couldn't tell. She had a beautiful face, punctuated by dark brown eyes, and set deeply between a slim nose and proud cheekbones. Her lips were thin but well-formed, and her hair was long and chestnut. More striking than her appearance, however, was the confidence that she exuded in this most alien world of desert and danger. Just, too close, just close enough to see what was going on. The name's Bond, by the way. James Bond. I know who you are. Just listen to me, Mr. Bond. This is Vivienne Michel, a 30-year-old Canadian agent who has been working on Lopakin for over three years. It's taken her a long time to infiltrate his network and earn his trust. She was first put to the case to track his movements in her native city of Montreal, where, she was buy where he was buying up St. Lawrence Riverfront and investing heavily in extensions to the port for his own goodwill shipping freight. Where other nations and intelligence services have failed, Vivienne had succeeded on behalf of CSIS in getting and staying inside. She explains that she and her governments are nearly ready to snare Lopikin. 
She's well aware of MI6's attempts at investigation in the past and declares that Bond's recklessness at the gatehouse just now has created a bad situation for them both. He tries to reassure her of his own side's interest and gains some of her sympathies, but not her trust. Michelle was on her way back to the compound from delivering food parcels to the nearby town of Gidma, part of Lopikin's authentic cover, and isn't prepared to bring Bond on as a partner in anything. He accepts her position and admires the progress she's made up to this point. He promises to stay out of the sight, but he won't go away. This mission is too important to jeopardize. She agrees to bring him into the compound, but he's to stay low beneath the canvas of the truck. Bond promises to support her and her government's clandestine efforts in exchange for information on what's been happening in the desert. She encourages him to see for himself and drives towards the hangar. If he further jeopardizes him or her cover, he'll be killed. And if he's caught, well, it's his own head. Bond agrees, accepting this as his best way in. Like it or not, this Canadian agent is way ahead of him on the scent. He's no choice but to follow her lead. Inside the hangar, from underneath the canvas, Bond waits and watches Vivian speak to two guards as she exits the truck. The hangar doors close automatically, and she walks away with them both to the nearby elevator, laughing in French. The professionalism of her easy performance is arresting. Bond's impressed. It's not for nothing that she's been able to get this close. The hangar doors close automatically and Bond is left alone in the quiet, echoey dark. He sneaks a further peek out from under the canvas and sees a handful of pickup trucks, similar to the one Vivian drove in, and one of the larger transports that he spotted earlier from the port of Tunis, unloading the Ustinov. Convinced of momentary safety, Bond affixes a silencer to his PPK and emerges carefully out from hiding. He moves stealthily across the floor to a high glass wall, brightly lit by the activity on the other side. It's then that Bond recognizes that his ground level is actually a viewing platform built high above a subterranean laboratory. Before him and beneath him is a remarkable sight, an underground refinery. His basic, his basic understanding of chemical processes informs him that this is a site where Lopikin is storing and transforming the diluted bitumen from the Canadian West into usable petroleum, diesel, and other fuels. Bond assumes that the two hangars identical to this must be doing the same thing. Three self-contained laboratory or refinery sites built in the Saharan Desert. From his vantage, Bond sees scientists and engineers working steadily. He also watches carefully as Lopikin himself moves between the stations, speaking with various lab-coated men. This facility works around the clock and under the cloaked cover of desert protection. Bond takes photographs with his 007 mini-camera and searches the scene for any sign of Vivian. The sound of a lift forces Bond back into action, but he's too far from the protection of the truck. Desperately, he throws himself against the wall into which the elevator is built, flattening himself as near as he can to the opening doors. The two guards exit, and Bond shoots both of them in the back. He's not proud of extinguishing life so easily, so coldly, but by now he's seen enough to justify it for the good of the mission. He turns to enter the elevator, but is kicked hard in the gut and disarmed by a powerful figure inside. Two figures, in fact. Bortsov and Balakin, Lopikin's men, knew he was there and used the guards as decoy. They'd been tipped off by Vivian. It was the only thing to explain in the preparation. The men, both wrestlers and much stronger than Bond, toy with him for a while, throwing him back and forth as a cat might paw a mouse before killing it. Bond lunges for his fallen gun, but it's kicked away by Balakin as he dons brass knuckles. A punch hits Bond in the gut and wins him for the second time. The intention to maim before killing has been made very clear. These two have been ordered to have fun, to tenderize the meat before service. Trapped in the hangar, like a scurrying rat in a box, Bond's only hope rests in reaching the truck and hoping that he would be saved, for a second time in as many weeks, by keys left in the ignition by a Canadian. 
Borsov pauses to don a pair of knuckles himself, and Bond takes his chance, rolling sideways from Balakin and running like a terrified child towards the pickup truck. Mercifully, he hops in the cab and turns the waiting keys in the ignition. He moves the truck quickly into drive, and at last has some advantage driving towards them and forcing them to dodge his unpredictable advances. Bond knows he's trapped, though. Even if he runs them down, which he tries, he hasn't much room to work with in this hangar, and is still a rat in a cage. Finally, he's struck with an idea. He drives to the nearest corner and hedges Balakin and Bortsov in. Then, reversing quickly and initiating enough backward momentum to cut the wheel, jackknife the rear end and force the truck into a donut pattern, forcing up smoke and heated rubber as the tires spin wildly. The Kazakhs cough and stumble through the smoke and they grope towards the truck. Bond chooses his moment, lines up his target, straightens the wheel. He hits Balakin straight in the waist and carries him on the hood about 30 feet before pinning him fiercely against the lone transport truck. The Kazakh groans in pain and collapses, dead. There was no savagery in this for Bond, just an instinct to survive. An alarm sounds in the hangar. Bond turns the truck toward the observatory wall. He hits the accelerator, drives the truck through the window, and down, down, crashing onto the laboratory below. In the immediate shock of broken glass and near-certain explosion, Bond throws himself from the truck before it hits. He hits a table and rolls to the side as the truck crashes into a network of horizontal pipes in flames. Rising, with fire spreading to his right, Bond quick quickly surveys the lab to find workers running from the explosives. In the distance, he sees Vivian Michelle waving frantically at him from the far end. She's alone and shouting at him to hurry. Sprinklers erupt noisily from above and spread water over the environment. Bond bolts towards Vivian and reaches her. She grabs his arm and leads him down a darkened corridor and out the refinery lab, handling, handing him an assault rifle. Two security doors and another darkened hallway later, they reach a code-locked blast door, which she opens to the outside. Bond finds himself then standing outside the hangar in the cold and under a starred desert sky. Alarms continue to sound from within the compound as Vivian gestures to the barbed wire fence. The two climb the fence and make their escape across the difficult mile terrain and back to Bond's camouflage G-Class Mercedes. The escape is silent both desperate to talk, but more desperate to stay unnoticed. From the relative safety of his 4x4, Bond and Vivian catch their breath and pause to witness the destruction. The first hangar is burning ferociously, but the damage seems to have been restricted to the single site. The other two hangars look safe, but their transports are still being evacuated. Vivian admits that she turned Bond in, sending the two Kazakhs to intercept him. Her years of hard undercover work and trust building weren't expendable. His reckless abandon, however, most certainly was, at least to her. She admitted to thinking about killing him herself back at the gatehouse, but felt that maybe this, Bond's arrival, was a discernible sign that her work was nearing an end. Either way, it didn't matter much now. Her cover was blown. Bond had crashed in and forced the matter like a true colonial prick. The least she could do was make him earn her respect. Sorry, I couldn't have disappointed you there and been something other than British, Bond offered. It's all right. I promised myself to help you out anyway. If you could handle Lopikin's men, that is. But I wasn't in a position to simply drop my cover and hold your hand. You must understand that. Of course. But now, having cut your ties, or rather having cut me in your ties, it could help to have an ally on the international front to corroborate the things that have been going on. You've done none of this heavy lifting, Bond, Vivian said. You've got it on a plane, a boat, and then a luxury 4x4. I've been to Greece for three years. We can share what's ahead of us, but the credit belongs to Canada. Her Majesty's government wouldn't have it any other way, Bond replied. Vivian smiles warmly and begin to talk. 
Lopikin's enterprise buys diluted bitumen from partners in Alberta and transports it to Montreal and sometimes New York via rail line. It's then packed into containers and shipped to North Africa under the pretense of humanitarian wheat and other foodstuffs. Traced from Canada's prairie provinces, this ruse is believable and makes for a sound operation, particularly when Lopikin's networks control each of the transport and access points. When it arrives in Tunis, the diluted bitumen is trucked out to various sites across the Sahara, where it's refined and secret labs like this into fuels and sold to highest bidding clients, including terrorist organizations and local dictators. Michelle explains to Bond that Lopikin does not discriminate when it comes to profit. Man, woman, child even, he'll sell to and exploit anyone, and his chain of supply and export is airtight. Locating this site was much easier than tracing all the covert businesses he uses in Canada and around the world. But no one cares what happens out here in the desert. The refinery compound back there is one of two sites in the world. He uses a Pacific shipping line from San Francisco and does the same thing in Asia. He's not, she's not been to that facility, though. French isn't as useful over there, not in Siberia. Lopikin has stores of fuel and ammunition, though. I've seen the inventories, enough to disrupt and overthrow the fragile bonds in Eastern Europe. Is that his plan, Bond asks, to seize power, politically? No, Vivienne replies with irritation. Haven't you been listening? He's only interested in profit. He does business with warlords, terrorists, whoever wants fuels and weapons. Bond tried to reconcile this information with his experience. But why is he so brazen about being seen? In Canada, at the oil sands, he exposed himself to me willingly. Hubris, Vivienne said simply. He's a bit Shakespearean that way. He has so much faith in his operations that he isn't afraid to keep his public image. His cover is remarkably tight. The humanitarian angle serves him very well, and he does plug millions of dollars of aid into this country each year. There's a sliver of truth to his noble cause, even if it's covering up a far more sinister folio. Out here in the desert, Bond asks, no one's challenged him before? It's only the Bedouins nearby, she replies, and they've learned from experience to stay away. Lopikin buys them off with food and grain. It seems to suit their silence. Bond reflects on this, but his concentration is cut short. Shots are registered outside the vehicle as three heavily outfitted BTR-152s rush towards them over the, desert so over the desert road with lights flashing. Like it or not, Bond and Vivian are in for a chase. Sorry, Q, Bond says aloud. He hits the accelerator and speeds away. What follows is a pursuit through the desert night between one Q-branch G-Class Mercedes driven by Bond and three outfitted Russian BTR-152s with mounted guns. Bond leads his pursuers far from the compound and on a road leading northwest. Their escape is thwarted numerous times by some skilled shooting from Lopikin's men, but Bond outwits and outmaneuvers each one in turn. With the help of Q's additional extras, he and Vivienne do away with each one and manage their escape. Though the headlights flash and bounce with every jolt of suspension, there's nothing to see but desert road ahead. Both agents sit quietly, the realization of collaboration dawning on them, and perhaps something else? Vivian is the first to speak when they reach a fork in the road. If we can cross into Algeria, I have a contact in Bigstra that can get us out of Africa. Bond, feeling the fool, ashamed now still for blowing her cover and realizing just how ill-prepared he was for this mission, turns the wheel left in agreement. Of course, he says. So that's the end of that section. Comments, questions? Just very good writing, and uh, yes. I was definitely pulled in. Uh, Absolutely. Definitely reminds me a bit of like some of reminiscent of Ian Fleming's writing in, in that kind of sense. Well, I, th I think you flatter me unnecessarily. Um, I was hoping for 
just a, a comment that yeah, this is still making sense. <laughs> oh no, no, it's, it, it no, makes yeah. sense. Oh yes, sorry, yes, it makes good. 100%. Okay, good, good. hundred cents. I'm just trying to put the Roger Moore into it. I'm just. Oh uh, yeah, I know. That's I know. I know. I know. Well, I know. I was gonna say again. He's uh, he's very limber, like when he jumps out of the truck and all this. <laughs> he's very oh, limber. Really? This is 1976, Roger Moore. It's only three years after Live and Let Die, though. Okay. It's true. Yeah. It's anyway. It's definitely yeah. true, but he's definitely uh, a much more. Uh, he like, is. He's yeah, a more hardened. Someone, yeah, yeah. In this, in this, in this particular film, they, they, <laughs> I guess for some particular reason, before Moonraker, maybe because the whole Saltzman and Cubby thing got done, <laughs> Cubby was tired of Salts of you know of Harry's you know like uh, over the topness, I guess you could say, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he wanted to bring Bond back down to basics again, and he and so he did this you know went on the energy crisis thing and he wanted mm-hmm. to have something done about uh, he wanted to bring bond back down to earth i guess you could say even before he did that you know a couple of years later with mm-hmm. moonraker so uh well following up with free eyes only well we, we'll see we'll see what happens now you'll be you'll be pleased to hear that the remainder of what i've written is 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 not quite as lengthy and detailed as that i have still written out some stuff but we're, we're moving towards um, the speed which will draw me to a close. So yeah. your your patience is much appreciated, and I I do hope you continue to enjoy what we've got going here. So oh, yeah, yeah. Next location, Station C, the Defen Bunker, CFAS Carp, Canada. Five days later, four stories below the ground, Bond sits in a plush leather armchair, sipping tea. He waits for judgment. The air is close, and the light hum of invisible generators powers this incredible location and gives the waiting room a distinct character. Next to him, on a similar chair, is Vivian Michelle. She's more comfortable here than him. It's her native soil, after all. But this place, who could really be comfortable here, in a Cold War atomic bunker? Plus, she's not the one who needs to explain why the last link on her mission's chain went up in smoke, threatening the entire operation. She'd already been questioned in Ottawa, and regardless of how she may have sugar-coated the truth, the responsibility for what happened out there in the desert, the blow to Michelle's cover, lays squarely at his feet. An upholstered door, not unlike his superior's back in London, opens, and a stern face instructs both agents to enter. Bond and Michelle enter the room and are welcomed by the executive of Canadian intelligence, General Barrett Mackenzie. Welcome to Station C, Commander Bond. Please have a seat. Thank you, sir, and please accept my apologies for what took place in Tunisia. Agent Michelle is not responsible for... I know that, Commander Bond, the director interrupted. Your superior and I have already been through all of that. I'm growing tired of apologies. If it's all right with you, I'd like to move forward and see what can be done with what little we have left. Of course, sir. It was M's turn to talk. 007. We've reflected on your report and accept your responsibility for what went wrong. I probably shouldn't have sent you on a whim like that. Nevertheless, the Canadians have the lead on the Lopikin affair. General Mackenzie and his team have been working on him for over five years now, lining up all the dominoes that we hadn't. Had it been two or three months earlier, your shoddy work in Tunisia might have cost him more than just a mole. Bond said nothing. He knew what could be coming. M continued. But Agent Michelle was about to be pulled anyway. Her wiretaps and recordings are solid. Your recklessness seems to have come at a good time. The Canadians now have what they need to bring him in. M paused and Bond waited for the dismissal. The customary two weeks leave, the sort yourself out 007. But it never came. There's something else, Bond. Something the Canadians have uncovered but weren't able to make sense of until now. What's that, sir? M handed Bond a document folder. Inside were photographs of properties, listings, and corporate holdings in Lopikin's name. Properties in Jamaica, Istanbul, Bahamas, and Switzerland. The affiliated businesses involved bauxite, guano, gold, and construction. 
Bond's heart began to race. On their own, these were merely fingerprints of a wealthy industrialist who enjoyed travel and comfort and profiteering. But to Bond, the places, the names, the stocks, the businesses, they all added up. Spectre. Lopakin's an agent of Spectre. That could very well be the case, 007. Yes, M agreed. The dates and times of transactions match at least four of your missions. It all was coming into clear view for Bond now. The fearlessness in Lopakin's demeanor, the recognition at the refinery, the willingness to expose himself even, that hubris, the description Michel had used to describe him, the refinery in the desert, the other one in Siberia, the supply chain to terrorists, Bond said, extorting the extorters, Spectre stretching out its tentacles. That's what we think now, yes, M agreed. There are too many coincidences and links to previous known affiliates. Now it was General Mackenzie's turn to speak. And here's where we defer to you, M. We've done the work on Lopakin, but you've got the Spectre intel. Agent Michel and Commander Bond were destined to meet over this, it would seem, at one point or another. He paused and looked at both special agents. We've decided on togetherness for the rest of the job, a joint Canada-UK operation to see this through. Operation Goodwill. Mackenzie reached for an eyes-only folder and presented it to them. Lopakin's hosting a gala fundraiser at the casino in two nights. He's not changed a single order, shipment, or movement since the explosion in Tunisia, so we've no reason to believe he won't be there. You've got an hour to review this, M said. A car is waiting to bring you to Montreal. Godfrey Tibbetts, the driver. He'll also be the third man in this affair. A good chap. I think you know him. He'll give you what you need. Yes, sir. An acquaintance. We've shared some dinners, played some cards, Bond said. M ignored the comment. Now listen, 007. This is Agent Michelle's turf. She knows Montreal. The people, the language, the culture. You follow her lead until you reach the casino. That's where you'll meet with Lopakin and play cards. Bond looked confused. Sorry, sir. How are you so sure it'll play itself out like that? M looked at Bond with that familiar authority. Because we've backed a hefty donation and bought you a seat at the tournament table, of course. Now get moving. Montreal. Later that afternoon, Bond reflected on the sport ahead of him while showering in his suite at the Ritz-Carlton. He was still the best card player in the service, at least in M's opinion. That ruse at Blades with Hugo Drax years ago went a long way to securing the reputation in his supervisor's eyes. But cribbage? The game was going to be cribbage. Bond hadn't played it much since before joining the service and never in a public forum, but he knew it well enough. It wasn't a popular casino game. For one thing, you had to touch the cards and shuffle yourself. That put a lot of gambling houses off. Then there was a the complex scoring. It was a complicated game in which you pegged points on a board and raced your opponent to the finish line based on the cards dealt, kept, and played. It was full of rhythm and strategy and luck, more subject to the latter than Bond would like to admit. He smiled to himself and stepped out of the shower at the appointment of Tibbet. M was a crafty old badger. Tibbet was a relentless cribbage player, aside from being an excellent driver and aide. It was clear that M intended for Bond's time, not eating or sleeping, to be spent practicing. Well, if he beat the other seven players at the table, in the round robin, and progressed to the final, he'd get a chance at the big prize, a sit-down match with the evening's chief facilitator and philanthropist, the guest of honor himself, Stefan Lopakin. Of course it was a publicity stunt for Lopakin, but he was a big name in Montreal. He'd set his businesses there, he'd expanded the city's charitable name through his shipping and goodwill, and he'd made powerful friends in the corporate sectors. He'd also become a naturalized Canadian citizen. This was not a place where he would like to be embarrassed. Bond knew he was too close to the case, but suspected that that was why M was giving him this one. He wanted to know, he wanted Bond to reveal the link, 
knew how important it was for him to prune a little branch off the rotten specter tree, even if it led nowhere further. Bond was careful about flattering himself, but he couldn't help but read it as a sign of his trust and respect, in spite of, or perhaps because of, the carelessness in Tunisia. Either way, the world would be better without a Lopikin in it, wouldn't it? Bond could read fairly clearly through the lines of the dossier. Mackenzie was insistent on bringing him in alive wherever possible, whereas M, supporting the edict, cared a little less about that. Since Tracy's death, there'd not been a whiff of spectre on the map. Nearly eight years. Blofeld had gone dark, and neither MI6 nor its allies had uncovered anything. Bond had actually, really, moved on. Now, with ducks lining up so perfectly, could Lopikin be the key to reaching Blofeld? Was Blofeld still alive? He intended to find out. An hour later, Bond feels the part in his navy-worsted flannel suit, and he waits at the hotel bar with a rye whiskey for Vivian to show. He had two days before the fundraiser. He'd be ready. That would come. His orders had been clear. Get settled, get comfortable, get practicing, get Lopikin to reveal himself. He couldn't get to the end before the beginning. So tonight, he'd get to know this girl a bit more, maybe even open up to her. After all, she'd saved his skin in the desert, and he had almost cost her hers. Plus, there was something unique, independent and fiery about her that made him quite comfortable. As if on cue, Vivian enters the bar, wearing an iridescent duck-egg blue gown with a necklace of Murano glass beads. Over her arm is a camel-colored Chesterfield coat. She looks stunning. The night has begun. Over dinner, Vivian and Bond do grow closer. Bond talks about Tracy, a little, Blofeld, a little more, and about why Lopikin's connections are so important to him personally. Vivienne adds further context to Lopikin's character. As the wine flows and oysters fall, he grows more and more appreciative of this woman's strength and character. She tells him of her orthodox Catholic upbringing, raised by her aunt following her parents' death, and of how she was meant for the missionary school but escaped to England on a baccalaureate scholarship to study languages. There she stumbled from one romantic mistake to another until she called it quits with men after following a lover to Germany for all the wrong reasons. She returned to Canada, hardened and wiser than before, applied to become a diplomat with the federal government in the hopes of traveling with some official purpose and putting her languages to use. After a year of public service abroad, she was encouraged into the intelligence branch. After dinner, Vivienne walks Bond through Old Montreal and they visit Notre Dame Basilica. By the lights of the cathedral, she warms further to Bond and kisses him. They stop at a bar on their way back to the hotel for a nightcap. Unbeknownst to them, Lopikin's remaining heavy man, Balakin, is twenty paces behind, watching from a distance. After breakfast, Bond and Vivienne visit the Olympic Park and Stadium. Though she knows the city, they're driven by Godfrey Tibbet and his Bentley T1, M's orders. The Olympic site is incredible. It's here on the observatory platform of Montreal Tower that Balakin reveals himself to Bond. Vivienne tries to reason with the heavy but knows it's hopeless. Bond crushed his partner, Bortsov, with a pickup truck back in the desert, so you can bet the grudge is now personal. The fight spreads from the observation deck to the outside of the tower itself, atop the world's largest inclined funicular lift. The vertigo is dizzying, the, fright, uh, the fight suspenseful, and the drop for Balakin, when it comes, deadly. Bond and Vivian win. Watching from below, Tippett calls the authorities about the unfortunate jumper who took his own life. Pity. Then he, Bond, and Vivian quickly leave the scene and drive south into Old Montreal for lunch. They dine at L'Auberge Saint-Gabriel in the afternoon, a delicious meal of bacon-wrapped scallops and duck à l'orange, and a vintage Beaujolais nestled in one of the city's oldest restaurants. Tibbet, sharing the stage with them for the first time, demonstrates the Q-Branch cufflink recording system that Bond will be using later that evening, uh, later tomorrow, 
uh, to further expose Lopikin as a specter agent. The three reconnoiter the casino site from the opposite side of the river before returning to the hotel. They identify their entry and exit points, and in particular the spot where Tibbets will be parked listening. While Bond is playing cribbage, Vivienne will be setting remote mines all across Lopikin's shipping businesses on the north side of the port of Montreal. While Bond's job is to drive out the Spectre affiliation and confront Lopikin, Michel's job will be to destroy his terrorist supply chain in the Montreal dockyard. General Mackenzie has instructed federal port authorities to clear a half-mile radius by 9 p.m. At last, it was time for action. Bond, dressed in his, in his midnight dinner suit, wishes Vivienne good luck and heads to the casino. The denouement plays out like this. The round-robin play begins, and the rules are explained at the table. American Cribbage Congress scoring. Two points for a normal win, three for a skunk. Pegging and results are televised live throughout the casino thanks to an overhead camera. Bond earns himself a spot in the final versus Lopikin. Of course he does. First player to seven points overall. He orders a rye whiskey with a sprig of ginger. The confrontation is everything you'd expect. Lopikin is gentlemanly for the people, cutting towards Bond. The conversation is a sword with two sides. Bond wins the first match. He loses the second, but wins the third and fourth before dropping the next match poorly, suffering a skunk. The overall score is 6-5, to five in his favor. The fifth match will be the deciding one. Bond drinks another rye. During the match, Michel infiltrates the dockyard and laying the mines throughout Lopikin's property and containers. Bond amplifies the pressure back in the casino between deals by dropping hints and one-liners. He mentions things like, Who knew cribbage was such a big game in the Sahara? And, did you ever play with John Strangways or my friend Professor Dent while you were in Jamaica? Closer to home, he draws attention to the henchmen, the Edmonton refinery botch, their whole tenured relationship. Lopikin says nothing to connect the Spectre tendrils, but he is clearly jarred by having his M.O. exposed. Soon, decisively, he's brought a drink of scotch by a gloved worker. It sits upon a round paper coaster. There is a coded message typed cleanly beneath. Bond can't read it, but he understands the sentiment from the flash of fear on Lopikin's face. Now that Bond has blown his specter as a cover agent, his life is expendable to the organization. Bond wins the tournament by pegging out in the last hand, a good distance clean of his opponent. Lopikin smiles for the camera, congratulates Bond, and hands over a 50-50 check worth $400,000. He tells Bond that the check is time-sensitive. He'd do well to spend it fast. Lopikin is ushered away from the casino floor by his entourage and into a waiting car. Bond exits the casino and meets Tibbet with the Bentley. They follow Lopikin's Mercedes 300D, hoping that it will lead them to a larger link in the Spectre chain. Instead, it heads north through the waterfront, along the dockyard. Cutting their lights and keeping their distance, Bond and Tibbet trail the Mercedes until it reaches a gate, behind which sits an impressive French colonial manse. Before the villain's car reaches its residence on sight, the dockyard explodes to the far right of them in a blinding, choreographed sequence of carefully timed detonations. Vivian has succeeded. Lopikin's car does a fast, sharp 180 and careens away, due west towards Mirabel, pursuing them and keeping speed in the Bentley, are Bond and Tibbet. Shots fire from the car ahead, now aware of being pursued. Bond reasons that Lopikin could as easily suspect them of being Spectre assassins, given that his cover's now blown. He's running out of desperation now. After a couple of miles, Tibbet guesses that they're heading for the airport, where Lopikin will have a plane waiting. Bond and Tibbet pursue the Mercedes to the airport, where Lopikin bounds over a private road and onto a runway at breakneck speed. Sure enough, a private Embraer jet sits waiting, its engines humming in readiness. More than 200 yards behind, there's no way Bond and Tibbet would intercept him in time. 
Nevertheless, Bond leans out the window and readies his PPK, instructing Tibbet to get as close as he can. He aims at the, plate, at the plane's wheels and landing gear, but he misses twice. The buck of the speeding Bentley is just too great a challenge for precise targeting. Lopikin rolls from his slowing car and steadies himself on the tarmac. He dashes for the steps of the jet and shoots twice at Bond and Tibbet. From somewhere else, a muffled and more accurate shot sounds. Lopikin drops down, just meters short of safety. His Mercedes speeds anxiously off away into the dark. An, um, an armed man exits the plane, steps down, and approaches his crumpled, writhing form. The man mutters something to Lopikin in Russian before emptying another silenced shot into his body and finishing him. He turns to Bond and holsters his gun. There's no threat, nor immediate danger. He stands waiting. Bond lowers his gun, exits the car fully, and walks towards Lopikin and the stranger. This is General Alexis Gogol, deputy head of the KGB. He introduces himself to Bond on the runway and explains that Russia, too, had business to conclude with this man. Perhaps sometime in the future, their nations may learn to share resources instead of chase similar targets at great cost to themselves. He utters a command in Russian, and two soldiers exit the Embraer and collect the body of Lopikin. They retrieve, store it, and then they fly away. Bond and Tibbet are left standing. 007 checks his watch and instructs Tibbet to drive to Parc La Fontaine, their agreed rendezvous with Vivian. Whistler, British Columbia. Bond and Vivian both are on leave, two weeks granted by their respective superiors. They ski together in the Canadian Rockies. Love and puns close out this curiously serious film, which remind Bond and his fans that Spectre is still alive. There you go. That's it. Wow, that's awesome. Goodwill, very good. good. Bye. Oh, man, that was great. Also love Gogol. <laughs> yeah, Gogol yeah. at the end, that was cool. That was awesome, yeah. Well, I, I, was, thinking, I was thinking Gogol would be good, because Gogol yeah, is kind of would. a mainstay in, in the Bond, in the Moore yeah. films, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. So this, so this takes place before The Spy Who Loved Me, then? That's right, yes, 1976. Yeah. It's, it's the, year, the year before, yeah, right? The year of the Montreal Olympics, yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one clarification too. Of well, course, not clarification because you're fully aware of it. But um, Vivian Michelle is actually the main character of Fleming's novel, The Spy Who Loved Me. That's right. I was desperate to get her in there somehow, and I'm you really, redeemed, I'm really you glad redeemed I did. Her. You redeemed her. <laughs> I've tried to. Oh, I've, yeah. I've tried to. Yeah, I turned her yeah. into a secret agent, which of course she's not in the story. But no, yeah, no, no. I want, I wanted so, her in there, and I thought that that's one part of uh, of the of the Fleming sweep that was never included in the Eon films, right? Well, yeah. it's definitely true. Yeah. That was wow. That was excellent. So now, throw throw some questions at me, guys. Go ahead. Okay. So one thing, and it, that was absolutely incredible. I just have glad one you enjoyed thing, it. And I hate I hate to be like a thing. So no, 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 no. There was no CSIS in 1976. That's good to know. What when, <laughs> when was CSIS? When did CSIS form? Uh, 1984. It, it originally was. Uh, like RCMP intelligence, okay. and then it it, uh, it branched off into uh, its own uh, government agency. And do you know what? You you do me you do me a service there, buddy, because I spent so much time researching the like the Saharan towns and the distance <laughs> the distance to you know this town or that town and how far out I'd have to plant a compound no. that I I, I did I, I was quite myopic on that so 1984 that's... is when CSIS was formed so and and, and all but, sort you know, of covert I, I mean yes that's what I'm giving to uh, that's yeah it, but it all, but all, all covert operations were run through the RCMP before that 
More or less, yes. Canada had um, no Secret Service. Okay, I didn't know that. Well, that's good. That's good to know. I took it as a. I took it for granted, you know, because because we're dealing. Like, I mean, there must have been some equivalent for the, for, you know, to, to MI6 well, in, I mean, in Canada. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, they had, I mean, they had, you know, they did have, I mean, obviously Canada had, had spies. Now, as far as I know, for, like, they didn't have their own intelligence agency. Okay, uh, right. Yeah, and, and that's what I said. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, so prior to 84, security intelligence was uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That's what, it was. so there you go. Good. So that's what, so there was, um, yeah, exactly. And then it, eventually it, um, it, uh, it it branched off, but uh, so what happens yeah. then, Jeff? Say like in this time, right, nineteen seventy six. If you are, if you as a Canadian detective or agent or whatever, you're working on an international case as part of the RCMP. When you travel abroad, who are you? Like, if you need to investigate something internationally on behalf of the RCMP, are you are you a card carrying police officer? Uh, I, I think, well, okay, no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not the authority on this, but I think what would happen is you would have to be like, you would probably have some kind of diplomatic credentials. Like it's almost like, um, like for example, uh, with the United, I'll, I'll give you an example with, with the United States, yep. um, there was no, they didn't have an intelligence agency like the CIA, um, uh, until 1941, like the, the only thing they had was the FBI, and they did have spies, but a lot of them were working out of the State Department. Now, and so I, I think Canada kind of had the same thing. Where like, mm -hmm. if Canada had spies, like um, they probably were either through either the RCMP or or military intelligence, okay. or or right. sort of something like Canada's. Um, well, I was going to say global affairs or whatever it is, now, but. I mean, they would be under the purview of, of, of the government and, and whatever. But um, if you're trying to think of like um, a specific agency, I, mm -hmm. it, I think it would almost kind of I, I'll be honest, because I, I don't know. I'm just going to say that. I don't know. <laughs> right. but, well, let's do a fact sorry. check on that, because I would um, like to know. I'd sure. like to know so I could actually improve that part of this silly treatment, uh, because it's a it's a rather blinding error on my part. That no, no, there no, was no, no. Canadian I, I, secret I, I, service. I, I, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want it to. I don't want it to sound like I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to shit on you. No, I know. Uh, I know you're not, man. I know you're not. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't feel that way at all. It's just I would like to know what to say in 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 place of CSIS. What should uh, I? Should I just say RCMP? She's uh, just an RCMP. I would officer. say RCMP. I would say RCMP. Okay, cool. RCMP, cool. Uh, That's what we'll do. Because there was like RCMP Security Service, which mm -hmm. the, which was the predecessor to CSIS, because it was kind of like there was RCMP. And then there was like the RCMP, like kind of like intelligence mm -hmm, mm -hmm. division, which would right, work with cool. with other governments and stuff like that. All right. Well, guys, let me what just that's uh, basically saying I think is that the at, at that time there was no established agency in the Canadian government that was full that was just only handling intelligence. If intelligence was required on behalf uh -huh. of Canada, it was done through different branches of the RCMP okay, yeah. and the military different overseers and the military yeah. it was not a defined kind of mm -hmm. thing like it is in england or in the united states Good. or in correct or, or, or like the kgb in uh soviet union for example all right excellent and what i will do then is pretend in my own little squirrel mind that one of those branches was called csis and, and it can stand yeah. for something entirely different Canadian Security Services? Oh, yeah, something like that. Um, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, yeah. 
I would like to say, though, guys, that in terms of macro objectives to that little project, one of the things I wanted to do, it was important to me that Roger Moore's era had a film that was a little bit more serious. And yeah. by serious, I mean yeah. a little bit tougher, like For Your Eyes Only. I wanted something a little bit tougher. And I know that that wasn't it. I should have picked Dalton. You know, I was thinking Dalton the whole time I wrote this. Um, but no, really, I wanted to have female characters that 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 had agency now i mean i'm still writing from a white man's perspective and i fully understand that but i wanted characters who saved his ass and and i think if there's a bond of the six who could handle having his ass saved by a woman it would probably be roger moore's right yeah i, I would say so i would say and to be fair i think craig's bond wouldn't wouldn't care if he was saved by a woman either maybe so maybe so yeah um Dalton, i also i can see being pissed off about it for sure uh, Connery would never, it would never happen. Turn, would somehow turn the situation over, <laughs> or it would, would never yeah. ever be written yeah. in that in that way anyway. Yeah, so. you're totally right. You're totally right. Um, <laughs> I so I wanted also to bring that as we said, Josh. I wanted Vivian Michelle. I thought that this Canadian thing would would allow her to come in and you know be used somehow. Yeah, um, for sure. It's, what did you that, think about what did you, angle? What did you think about Agent Caruso, the girl in Live and Let Die? Remember the Italian agent at the beginning who I brought back in for his Sicilian leg. <laughs> Or don't thought, you mean ciao, Bella? Yeah, I thought I thought, <laughs> I thought she was quite. Uh, she, she was a good plant to have in there too. Yeah, absolutely. He's so he still so Moore's bond is still keeping up with some relationships. Yeah, and also I suppose the uh, elephant in the room, Roger Moore's bond, with the exception of some weird scene with Blofeld in a wheelchair, Bond's never had a Spectre. Not really any a subplot even of Spectre, you know, not really. So, Remember, that wasn't Blofeld. That's just a guy in a wheelchair, yeah, right? Yeah, trying to offer him a delicatessen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I just thought, why not try to add uh, something different, different ingredient into there? Now, uh, yes. in terms of shortcomings, I'm, I'm well aware that there might not be as many plot points as necessary to make a full story out of it. But our jobs, I suppose, are are to make treatments that uh, screenwriters can go away and do something with. Well, so one thing I'm, I I'm proud of that, though. yeah. Yeah, you should be absolutely. It was great, man. And I, oh, I, I, my I, God, that was. I phenomenal. can feel you, the writer and you c coming back there again from like short stories you submitted to me before. You know, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, yeah. my buddy. He, he's kind of hard. He's kind of like rehatched or something there. I I don't know what, how to exactly to describe it. Some sort of like metamorphosis, I guess you could say. Um, anyways, I just wanted to say though regarding the Spectre thing, mm -hmm. another error, not really an error, but just kind of. I'm, Spectre was also at that time belonging to Kevin McClory. Yeah, so of course. Neon Production could not have used the term Spectre either. Sorry, I... We're gonna we're gonna pretend we're gonna pretend otherwise. We're gonna pretend pretend as like 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 this is it's an mm -hmm. alternate era mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, alternate reality, I guess you could say, where McClory doesn't have the rights to Spectre. How no. about that? Yeah, in, and in my alternate era, he never felt it with Fleming either, because Fleming never executed the dick move with Thunderball that led out to all of that. So there you go. In in my alternate reality, Fleming shared the credit equally among himself and Whittingham, and everything is great. <laughs> yeah, everything is great. Ian Fleming's still alive too at that point. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. So yeah, that that's uh, that's my story, boys. 
What what made you think of the title, if I may ask you? Well, I I needed yeah okay. You watching Good, Goodwill Hunting? Not at all. No no no. Goodwill. Goodwill being you know Lopikin's cover, the Goodwill projects, right? That he sends, uh, that, that he does his shipping yes, freight yes. with. And I also wanted something a little bit alliterative and something that I know could work as a lyric in in a song. And I thought that had a blasty title that Paul Anka's vocals could just uh, could emit into the soundscape. Goodwill, or Goodwill, Goodwill, goodbye. I'll correct goodwill, you there. Goodwill, goodbye. Goodwill, goodbye. Goodwill, goodbye. And I just thought that that would be it. So, listen, what do you think? What do you think? The it's it's a bit silly, right? Of M just to send him out there without anything. Like he just goes out and and he is really reckless. And I think Roger yeah. Moore's Bond does tend to be a little bit like he, he just stumbles he into stuff, right? He does tend to be reckless. More than the others. But yeah. I think I think the point of that is because of that like that relationship that M has with him, like an angry parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it works. <laughs> yeah. There's gotta be people in the government who go are, like just telling M. So you're basically putting the burden of all of of all British intelligence yeah, onto one on man's this shoulders. one guy. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, and then and you shit like, on him. It's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Do we like the idea of Bond having lunch with Q and them actually having like a friendship scene instead of a Roger Moore kind of? I would love to have seen that in a Bond film. So that that's a nice little nugget there. That's fan. That's fan. Like, uh, I guess it is fan fiction, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit yeah. of a. A fan fiction, fan wank, whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh, it is. And it is fantastic. Yeah. Well, would Roger Moore's Bond be the one to do that, though? Uh, that's a good question. I, would I say don't know. More. Yeah. That, I'm not that, so that, sure. That, that's yeah. a tough one. If he, <laughs> right. took, if he yeah. took him to lunch, he'd take it to like a shitty restaurant. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, look, guys, thank you for indulging me in that. And uh, I hope there's something in there that listeners found exciting or interesting at the very least. Thank yeah. you, Jeff, for pointing out my uh, my inert flaw with CSIS. Yeah, I feel and terrible. Don't sorry. feel terrible, man. This is just what it's all about. Did, like, we correct did each casting? other. Did you, do, did you think of any casting for the roles? Uh, no, I deliberately did not think of any casting. And, I have a couple. Um, yeah. I, I thought that's cool. a couple to work, but not for everyone. And that's I, so I don't have like a full... Cast. I'm just gonna. No, no, I didn't do that. No, I'm looking forward to hearing. I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys have come up with. So I am going to recline and sit back, and I'm going to hand the stage uh, over to you, BFG, and you can tell us all about your James Bond story involving Canadian sites. No, no, no. It's time for the BFG's entry into our... Submitted for your approval. Submitted for your approval. Of the Bond by Number Society. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking like the Bond by Number. Although I do have William Shatner in there. I was like, should I use that for the movie? (laughs) It's not a bad title, actually. Yeah, Yeah, I know. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you this thing. I I do have an RCMP like uh, higher up in my story as well. And his last name is also Mackenzie. How how do you like that? Very cool. Very cool. All right, so uh, I don't think I, it'll be hard to top your presentation there, of course. But, well, we'll um, see. It's not about topping one another. It's about it's oh, about I having know. it's about having fun. Yes, of course. But even still, it's always this, the act that follows. You know, you, you have the more pressure. I would say if you were a band, it would be very hard to put on uh, to to start a song after you just got off stage. That's all I gotta say, Scott. Well, boys, you you do me you do me nice you do me nice credit there, but uh, you I you put us at an all time high. Oh, do you know what that makes that makes the the world for me just seem brighter. That really does. So that was that was actually one of my 
<laughs> one of my possible titles for the uh, it was all time high, right. but I changed it anyways. So, right, so Josh, why don't why don't you remind us? Uh, sorry, buddy, to interrupt you, but why don't you remind us of your bond, your era, and uh, take it away? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So the bond that I chose was Sean Connery, and basically the '60s, early mm-hmm. early '70s. That's okay. the range that I had to choose from. Yep. I chose an alternate reality where after Thunderball. Uh, you Only Live Twice was not the following film uh-huh. made. Instead, it was The Brave and the Bold. The Brave and the Bold. Very nice. Yes. I feel okay. like that could have been like a Fleming title. So that's kind of yeah, what, yeah. what I chose. Oh, yeah. It's based off a, uh, a unfinished manuscript by Ian Fleming. Okay. Um, that originally, uh, that wasn't kind of really being looked at. A young screenwriter named Robert Town got a hold of it and decided mm-hmm. to pin his own version and he brought it to cubby and cubby was kind of tired of harry saltzman at that point and okay. he didn't want to do another big bloated <laughs> thunderball like project he wanted to bring bond back to basics a little bit okay and connery was tired and okay. but when connery read robert town's treatment of uh, fleming's novel connery was very excited to do the project okay and one of the things about it too is that after thunderball the money that was spent on it mgm was happy to do it because mm-hmm. uh the film involved a lot of on location shooting okay and gotcha. uh, Connery was able then to convince Terrence Young to direct. As well. <laughs> okay, even though Terrence Young would have been would have been pretty panted out after Thunderball as well. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, this this but... must be a great story to get all of these people on board. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so that's so there you go. The Brave and the Bold, 1967, Al- okay. alternate reality. Here we go. Nice. Okay. So my opening sequence, unfortunately, it does not involve Canada. Because Canada plays a big part in the main storyline. So I just did an opening sequence. I think that I just enjoyed writing and I wanted to um, begin the story with a nice slow Mm -hmm. burn and then a big and then a big action sequence and then the titles. That's basically what I have here. So so we open in Chinon in the Loire Valley, France. Mm. The ancient Plantagenet stronghold of which the town is named looms above the balcony of Mm. the Hotel Diderot where the camera follows into the hotel room currently occupied by hmm. one Sullivan O'Hara of the Irish Republican Army. Oh. O'Hara tr- dresses himself for the day. Throwing on his sport jacket, he opens his briefcase and pulls out his 1919-45 handgun and places it in his shoulder holster. Stepping out of the Hotel Diderot, O'Hara hmm. walks the streets of France, smoking a cigarette. A black Mercedes drives on a side road in the distance, glimpsing him between the alleyways. He passes by a street cafe where someone is engrossed in their morning newspaper and sipping their black coffee with some unfinished Mm. figs on their plate. (laughs) The paper lowers and is folded. The coffee is finished in one sip, and the cafe attendant rises to his feet and grabs him at the base of the table. It is James Bond. He shadows O'Hara through the cobbled streets of Chinon. There's a plethora of tourists, and Bond keeps his pace, eye on his clothes. The trees in autumn colors and the bend of the Loire, golden in the sunlight. Bond looks up at the rampart jutting from one of the towers. 005 gives him a nod and suddenly disappears from the turret. Bond continues through the courtyard and another man joins him. It is Defarge from the Duzium Bureau, dressed in sports coat and scarf. And how are we finding Shinon, Monsieur Bond? Dangerous. That man <laughs> O'Hara has killed five Englishmen and three Americans in the past year. The Brotherhood is starting to stir up things in Dublin. Hmm. So you'll excuse me, Alphonse, if I don't partake in the scenery. <laughs> ah, I see. But an Englishman's home is his castle, is it not? Perhaps. We didn't get along very well, our people. Times change. Times, hmm. yes. People. 
do not. Reaching the top of the turret, Bond twists his umbrella and it, and it flies open. Looks like rain, he says, and lifting up a leather flap with the handle, reveals a telescope lens. He peered through it, watching as O'Hara ascended a far distant rampart of the castle, where at his mm. opposite corner, a hunched older man in a black suit waits with an attache case. Not a single tourist on sight, this being an off-lift area. Bond watched the telescope umbrella as the older man approached the opposing figure of O'Hara. In a flash, O'Hara reveals his 45, mm. caps the silencer, and fires three shots into the older man. Bond stiffens as 005 runs up the step to the rampart and fires at O'Hara, but O'Hara manages to get off a few blasts, sending 005 over the rampart and into the courtyard Ooh. below. Tourists scream as O'Hara off, runs off with the attache. Bond raises his umbrella and, pushing past a stunned defarge, <clears throat> leaps from the turret, letting go of the umbrella when the ground was only a few feet away. Landing, he rolls across the ground and pushes through the screaming hmm. crowd after O'Hara. O'Hara pushes Taurus to the ground as he bulldozes his way to the exit. A black Mercedes pulls up to the entrance and opens fire with a Sten gun. Bond pushes our tourist girl to the ground just in time. He descends the hill into the town below. The Mercedes has taken the highway along the riverbank. Bond runs into town and he, until he finds a side street where he has parked his Aston Martin. Okay. The light of the screech of tires, Bond pulls out of the alley and, and seeing the way... Is it a DB5? Sorry to interrupt you. Is it a DB5? It a, it's a DB5. You got okay, it. Okay, right. Cool. Yeah. The weekend traffic was scarce, but still a concern. He was able to navigate his way through it. Gears shift, the engine thrums. Reaching on his dash, he flips the switch marked nitrous system and hits the gas <laughs> pedal. The speed increases, and Bond expertly weaves his way past lorries and weekend drivers, now catching up to the black Mercedes. Mm. O'Hara emerges from the side passenger window, firing his pistol as the machine gunner joins him. Uh, mm. The bulletproof windshield does its best uh, work to uh, protect Bond, but it's all but already the glass was becoming riddled Visibility suddenly becomes a, a concern. He uses the Aston Martin's front machine guns, but O'Hara's dig digs across the road, ramming other vehicles as they speed down the riverway. Bond mm. pulls out his Walther, firing at the blue Mercedes from his window as he continues to dodge the oncoming cars. Mm -hmm. He hits the machine gunner uh, square in the head, who falls from the vehicle and rolls into God knows where, probably on the <laughs> God knows where. Is that a French town? God knows where. The Mercedes swerves violently, breaking on a hairpin turn, and Bond struggles through the myriad struggles for the scene for the myriad bullet holes, gradually mm. spreading cracks across the windshield. So he does not see the construction pylon coming up on the ramp. He swerves out of the way. Bond manages to get back on the road, uh, but uh, he sees the trail of dust disappear. A light beam on his console. It's the radio. He pulls out the mouthpiece of the built-in CB. 007 mm -hmm. here. Man down. Mission failed. And that's the opening credits. Cool. Nice. I like good. that. That is that's good. It's good. tight. It's tight. It's got like that's a. It's got like a French connection feel to it. Well, I, it it reminded me of Ronin a bit. With yeah, like, the, know, the beginning, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. <laughs> you know? of the you know, like uh, a French, you know, like a, a church or like. Well, that, yeah. I, mean, I know that that was a coliseum, and like innocent people getting pushed around. Like, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That. Like, <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, and the uh, the Irish involvement too. Yeah, that was. Oh yeah, that's oh, awesome. yeah, for sure. Got a lot, for sure. Yeah, man. So here's the synopsis of the uh, the main storyline, essentially. Okay. Uh, so here's the plot synopsis. Right. So. Uh, a failed mission in France where the locations mm -hmm. of Nazi ordnance falls into the hands of terrorists leads right. Bond into London's communist underground where a member of parliament named Ivan Cromwell is desperate to find the weapons. Cromwell, Bond huh? follows the trail of the man who got away, an IRA assassin and sometimes mercenary for hire, James O'Hara. Sorry, 
Sullivan O'Hara. Sullivan O'Hara, yeah. His name changed halfway through the uh, treatment, sorry. (laughs) Uh, It's Sullivan Mm O'Hara. He traces O'Hara to Montreal, Canada, where supposedly the missing cache of V-2 rockets has been transferred years. He learned that O'Hara was close to a woman named Joelle Carnell, and with a mind to put pressure on her, Bond is shocked to find out that she is with the RCMP and has been trying to break a communist firing for years. Oh, O'Hara is a member and has been working with Ivan Cromwell, who believes who she believes is a smirch operative, but in her serial uh. position, she is ignored. As so happens in Bond films, 007 and Joelle hit the sheets. With the help of RCMP <laughs> Colonel Gordon McKenzie, uh, they track down the suspected communist in Old Montreal. O'Hara gets away with the V2 rocket stash via train. Bond and Joelle are detained by agents of Ivan Cromwell who is revealed to be the mastermind of a plot to bombard a visit of the Prime Minister in Banff while staging a communist coup in London, England. Simultaneously, Bond and Joel, with Colonel McKenzie and the last-minute arrival of Q, foil O'Hara's rocket installation atop Chinaman's Peak in the mountains near Banff. It leads to a showdown between O'Hara and Bond, culminating with O'Hara falling to his death. Bond returns to England and supervises the arrest mm-hmm. of the communist firing, now rudderless with the PM and his minister still alive. Cromwell flees uh, England and has revealed that he was an agent of Spectre and is geared in Walter uh-huh. Prince Stavro Blofeld. Nice one. So uh-huh. can I ask you a question about Bond and the the RCMP lady? At yeah. the Like when they hit the sheets, right? And they decide, they, they kind of decide to work together. Uh-huh. Is that... She got her man? Did she get her man? <laughs> she got her man, yeah. <laughs> RCMP always do. Is that, Josh, is, is that like a, a, a conscious collaboration on both parts or is it just kind of like bond uses her or what like how do you read that no it's a conscious collaboration uh because in the story i was going to have her like working with bond to solve the case you know she's a secretary and no one takes her seriously in the rcmp Very but cool. she has yeah. this lead yeah. that she's working on through this guy uh o'hara who's been in the montreal like uh scene the entire mm-hmm. time and has connections and stuff and she's been working on him and so is she doing uh, this work uh, kind of like uh, covertly, like do her yes. right? Yes, why... it's covertly, and that's why her, uh, her her superior kind of comes at her a bit for it. Mm-hmm. But eventually, he kind of sees he kind of sees the light, and that's why he helps her. The he gets the RCMP and uh, to help her and Bond, you know, uh, or he trusts her anyways to go on this raid at O'Hara's facility just outside of uh, Bam. And then uh, there's the huge, uh, then there's the, you know, the climb up the mountain of Chinaman's Peak where the yeah. V2 rocket installation has been cool. installed and Bond and, Bond and nice. uh, O'Hara have like their big fight together, right? I, li- I like that. Yeah, I do like that part. And Banff, I should say, was a space oh. that I was looking at for my story. I was going to use it. I was going to use it too, actually. But I, I was trying to find the, the, the distances between and betwixt these different Albertan sites that I was working on. I was like, I just can't get to Banff, but that yeah. the, the, the Banff Springs hotel, I really wanted to use. I think uh, it's a Fairmont what, hotel. Oh, that's, that's what's going to use oh, because I was going to have a casino nice. scene. <laughs> yeah. I nice. A, I was going to have a casino scene in, in Banff, like kind of as a, as like, uh, I guess a prelude to the final act for sort of thing. Right. So, okay, cool. Yeah. Right. Now that you know, the, now that you know, the, some of the characters, now that mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. the story, mm-hmm. this is the cast that I have, that I came up with and the okay. crew that came up for this film. Okay. So, James Bond, Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ivan Cromwell, Paul Schofield. Fresh <laughs> oh, that's, a, Award. that's great. Uh, a man for all seasons. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thomas <laughs> that's and great. I, he's called Ivan Cromwell because Ivan and he's, he's, he's descended from Russians. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. His mother uh-huh. was Russian immigrant. Uh-huh. And Cromwell being that he was a person who wanted to take over, he basically took over all of England, right? Like in a civil war. Nice so one. I thought that was the, kind of a mix of like uh, historical and 
you know, uh, oh, so it, I thought he was related, or did he choose that name? Like when he chose like his English name, he chose Cromwell, or he's actually technically related to Cromwell? A uh, distaff branch, a very distaff branch. <laughs> oh, okay, no, 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 that's cool. Either way, it works. That is cool, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Joelle Carnell is played by Canadian actress uh, Genevieve Bujold. Genevieve, sorry, Genevieve Bujold. Genevieve Bujold. I don't know her. What's tell oh, me better? You should see him. Um, I, I know her mostly from um, uh, Anne of a Thousand Days. She uh, was nominated for an Oscar. She played Anne Boleyn to oh, Richard okay. Burton's Henry VIII. If, Genevieve. If you can find that film, um, Anne of a Thousand Days. It's a really good movie. This is this yeah, is cool. I haven't. Uh, I didn't. Yeah. No, I don't know that. And oh, nice. And of a thousand days. Yeah, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good movie. Josh had like a one of those like double, like you know, like one side's one DVD, the other's another. Mm-hmm. And it had what? What was the one? It had and of a thousand days. What was the other side? It was uh, the one. Mary Queen of Scots. Mary with, Queen of uh, Scots. Yeah, right. yeah. Ah, she also starred in uh, Monseigneur with uh, Christopher Reeve. Oh. Very go. cool. I didn't know that. Uh, in fact, I, of course, I didn't know it because I didn't know who she was. But now I'm looking at her. I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, of course. I've seen that film. I've seen that uh, Murder by Decree. She's in that too. Yeah, Murder, Murder by, by Decree. Decree. That's right. Wow. With Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. James Mason as Watson, isn't it? That's right. Yes, it sure yeah. is. Yeah. James Mason, yes, our friend here on the show, friend of the podcast, James Mason. I was thinking of James Mason for Ivan Cromwell. Right, yeah. It's just a bit, just a bit too obvious because a bit too north by northwest there too. Uh, well, so, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. On top of the on top of the mountain yeah. at the end, yeah. Well, I was thinking I of Mason Schofield in, in the train as well. Mm-hmm. So I figured I'll just go Schofield because he's awesome and he does and he never did a lot of big films you know he was just like he was, he was a theater actor all, all all the way yeah no man i think paul schofield is an awesome uh, casting decision oh yeah yeah really really cool sure. and i wish yeah, that yeah. i mean i hadn't but i i probably should have played i should have done some casting here right so i can see her there with uh with richard burton that's a very interesting choice yeah i think she and connery would have uh the physical chemistry anyway wouldn't they for sure yeah she's a bit she's a I, you know I, know I know this sounds like kind of like a sexist term but she's a, in the end of the thousand days like she plays Anne very well she's a spitfire you know what i mean so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, very nice so moving on in the cast uh, uh-huh, for uh-huh. the big heavy uh o'hara sullivan o'hara uh one of my favorite actors he doesn't get a lot he's only known for a couple of roles and he kind of went and i think he he had, I think he had a bit of a sad ending. I think he got into, I'm not quite sure on the details, but he died mm-hmm. very young anyways. Right. Uh, Stephen Boyd, who is best known for Masala in Ben-Hur. Right. And have yeah. you have you decked out a full Canadian cast? And no, Stephen Boyd is from He's Northern not. Ireland. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I got him here. Ben-Hur, yeah. he was indeed in Ben-Hur, yeah. Now, yeah. you can picture that guy as a muscular oh, yeah. ex-IRA, like, like an IRA guy, yeah. for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And very physical. I think he'd be good physically against Connery, like the blocking and everything. Like it would work very well, in my opinion. Um, he's almost like a an anti Bond in a way. Actually, if you think about it, he could he could place Bond, and you know, like he he was still good looking then, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, this story also features the first appearance of Bill Tanner, uh, actually. <laughs> cool. And I have Anthony Quayle, a great British character yeah, actor, as, very much uh, so. As Tanner. Nice one. For Gordon McKenzie, uh, the hard-nosed but but eventually you know helpful RCMP colonel, I have mm-hmm. William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> he, Shatner could could do that one, and he wouldn't he wouldn't chew it. 
No, he would not. He'd be very no. straight with it, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, he'd be directed to do that. Yeah. Yeah, Terrence Young would get him in line, that's for sure. <laughs> is Terrence I... Young directing? Yes, he is come back, oh, hasn't yes, he? Right. Yes, he said he that. Has. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, of course, I got Lois Maxwell as Money Penny, Desmond mm -hmm. Llewellyn as Q, and, of course, Bernard Lee as M. Uh, directed by Terrence Young, screenplay by Richard Maybaum and Robert Town, uh, edited by Peter Hunt, who also mm -hmm. did a bit of directing to help Terrence out. Uh, mm -hmm. So he got his, I guess he got his britches there. Uh, cinematography by Ted Moore, old stalwart. Mm. Title song, oh, yeah. lyrics by Leslie Brookus, uh, <laughs> performed by Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Leonard Cohen, 1967. Like, I don't know. I don't oh, no, know. That's, if, that's uh, good. That's, that's good. It's good Cohen. Yeah, it's good Cohen. But I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if Buffy, Buffy Saint Marie, Buffy Saint Marie, would have got him on the on the curve. That's true too. I think uh, it's. Uh, I'm thinking songs from a room. No, oh, sorry. What's the one then? When he has the partisan, isn't that 1967? That is. That's uh, songs from a room. The partisan. Yeah, it was 67, Josh. So Cohen released his first album in 67. That, uh, okay. It works out because, on, because what happened is that uh, uh, Terrence Young and Peter Hunt, uh, uh -huh. they're, on their, they're doing scouting They're doing scouting stuff and uh, uh, they're doing scouting in Montreal and they hear about this artist, you know, that's kind of coming out of the work there and uh, they got him to do a Bond song and Leonard Cohen was happy for the money. <laughs> Like I bet he was, yeah. Um, can I ask you, Josh? And what... he also had, a, and also there was a brief affair between him and Genevieve Bajold. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what because type? Leonard, because it's Leonard Cohen, right? So... What type of song is it, Josh? Something like... on the veins of uh, "So Long, Marianne." I guess you could say. I guess is it okay? So, it. so you, nice. right, so oh, you're man, you're going to capture nice. that that sort of French Canadian vibe with like a <laughs> a lilted romance wrapped within a an an espionage thriller. Kind of, yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I wanted to do there, yeah. Very cool. All right. I also like, like the idea of Bond failing in a mission back in the 60s. Yeah, and get that I like... Kind of being like the premise yeah. of the story and him wanting to get to get it done and wanting also mm -hmm. to avenge, you know, like this this fellow agent who was killed, you know. So basically bringing down O'Hara and uh, Cromwell, like this is the whole storyline of it, right? I think your story is probably more ready-made in terms of its in terms of its uh uh it, its contracted form i think that it's tight enough to go with it right away and it would be more a character piece for for like connery's bond and needing to kind of reclaim himself a little bit or whatever like i think you've got what you need to make the film i think with mine it because it's its angles are a little bit wider in terms of traveling the world and you know the the bigger picture i think i would need a screenwriter to flesh out my my treatment into three or four more scenes to kind of like maybe something else happens in in the in sicily with mine i think you've got a small and tight enough story that it would it's work very, it's very tight yeah very it tight it feels yeah. like honestly like what i was thinking the whole time was uh from russia with love to be honest with you well, that's the thing, too, is like having uh, O'Hara, he was kind of like my, O'Hara is kind of like the second like coming of Red Grant a little Exactly. <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. Is, yeah, he, yeah. Is, he, is he controlled by the moon, by any chance, or influenced no, by No, not like in the book, no. <laughs> no. Uh, one last point. Uh, these are the gadgets that are used in the, in the film. Uh, so we have the Aston Martin DB5 with the usual course, features, yes. uh -huh. but an emergency nitrous system. And yeah, uh, I noted that. Windshield. Bloodproof, sorry? 
bulletproof oh, windshield. Oh, bulletproof. It's like, well, I guess that would be handy. It would also be handy. Yes. But I don't know what that would mean. You don't want to wipe off all that blood, right? So I just want to just, the blood. The blood just well, just imagine off. if windshields were not bloodproof. It's like, man, yeah. as soon as you as soon as yeah. you hit a deer or like a mosquito that bit someone, hit your windshield. You got to get a new windshield. That's totally true. <laughs> So, um, umbrella by London Fog with Bill. I love Fox that umbrella, by the way. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. uh, Q yeah. has a Q gives him a survival backpack uh, with parachute and mountain climbing kit, a peacock gun. A... Oh, okay. I was gonna say, does it have uh, like a Union Jack on it? Why not? Like... Uh, that, no, that's too obvious because he's going in. Covert. I know. I, I mean, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, he's going in cold and covert. Yeah. Yeah. So mountain climbing kit with the piton gun with explosive pitons as well. And unraveling, and it has a belt that unravels from the pack, and it's full of uh, knives for like stealth work. So cool. picture Sean Connery in his black archer turtleneck thing, whatever the heck he's doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's, throwing, like, he's throwing knives, and him throwing knives and like those poses, you know, like and bad guys and bad guys like grabbing their hearts with as they uh, as they fall over with a villain scream, you know. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, I picture it as cool. a yellow belt, so it's like Batman's. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> nice. yeah. Yeah. I like I like till Josh how you're situating it after kind of the bloat of Thunderball and yeah. almost almost like for your eyes only was Bond the the Roger Moore's Bond returning down a little bit to something smaller here you've got you've got Connery's Bond returning to or being presented in a smaller tighter character piece type story I, I quite like that I think that it it would really work and. I like it a lot, yeah. And I think listening to your treatment is making me think, while certainly I wrote more and I decorated more, I think I've got, I've definitely got gaps that, that could be lassoed, you know, that need to be filled. And I think that's, uh, that's cool. I would, uh, I would go watch your movie, sir. Thank you. Thank you so I much. I would, I would. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I like I'm saying, like, I think this would probably be the best Connery film. Like, well, not the best, but like in the top four, Connery oh, for sure. in my opinion. Yeah, maybe even sounds better cool. than maybe even I this might be hubris on my part, maybe even better than Thunderball. Who knows, right? Mm, who um, knows indeed. I don't have it, any extended long underwater sequences though. Oh right. uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I would say so. Probably like uh hour and maybe an hour <laughs> yeah, and seventy it's, minutes. It's, it sounds pretty tight. So yeah. and we've both selected Montreal, Josh, as a site of some nefarious <laughs> happenings. Yeah, and and Alberta technically as well. I know Alberta, and and you know I was thinking offshore oil, Newfoundland. I was going to go back home, you know, for my I story. But I'm surprised too. neither of you. I know, I know. I was do. like, yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to choose. Well, I, I thought I'm not going to choose. The history buff I'll, like, I'll let the newfies choose. I'll let the newfies go back yeah. home. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to find an angle no. into writing this story, and then I was thinking because I I was thinking of history, and then like I I, I'm, I am going to go in Canada eventually, but I need an opening to really grab me as yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah. as a writer as I could get started and I like sure you know s- s- like beginning with like Chinon that great castle in France that you see like in the lion in winter it's awesome you know, that's man like, that's awesome yeah, that's, that's yeah exactly I thought that was a cool opening to start with and yeah very French connection Frankenheimer at, at, very much uh, a little bit of bullet in there too um yeah. the last gadget I have is a Rolex watch it has right. a three-layer face so that so basically the face of the Rolex splits into three different faces the first uh-huh. face is a cipher Oh, cool! The second mm-hmm. face is a compass, mm-hmm, and the third mm-hmm. face is a is a compartment with a uh, tracking device. Nice so, one. Yeah, nice. That's pretty good. So that, that's what I have. I, I wanted to make my gadgets very like I didn't want to go to Thunderball or even like yeah yeah. You only live twice. Like I didn't want to go into Little Nelly territory. I want <laughs> I wanted to be more like Goldfinger, Rush of Love kind of kind of gadget. That's it's a moderate like 
believability of gadgets. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is for sure. And Josh, you... Well, I mean, I, I souped out in quite ridiculous style that Mercedes G-Class. Like, I did that because I thought he, Bond, Roger Moore's Bond in the desert, you know, wasn't going to be riding a camel on this mission. He was going to be no. using something the Q would give him, right? But yeah. and, and Q being hidden in the Medina would just kind of pull back a curtain and here's and here's your awesome fucking mercedes four by four but but josh if i could if i could bring you back to something you're saying about um you wanted a casino scene right yeah what what game would be happening there did you have anything in mind for that or was it just the, the, the customary token scene what about war <laughs> I, was, I, I was gonna say her asshole <laughs> well if, if, he, if he plays against o'hara like i would say crafts would would be like crafts a yeah that's cool Perhaps I think I think would be a different twist, uh, just because O'Hara with his he has kind of a, a less of a you know pristine background, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's yeah. true. And Jeff, what you were saying about the Newfies going back home. Now that I'm reflecting upon it, <sighs> I think I think maybe bringing Cribbage into my game. Crib's never been in a James Bond <laughs> film. Crib is not a romantic or a sexy card game, and you, <laughs> and yet, 15 and yet, two, 15 three. <laughs> that's right, that's right, <laughs> but. But you know what, though, Josh? Like, realistically, if you Even think the about game the game... Playing <laughs> with, with your uncle... Uh, oh, I know, right? Stuff, right? Like, but if your, you think about the game, think about the strategy, think about the different sequences in the hand, right? You've got the deal, then you've got the cribbage, then you've got your points, your pegging, and your lane, right? You're playing. I thought that it would be cool, like, the way Kronstein's chess game was kind of big-boarded for all the people to watch it. I would yeah, have thought, exactly. like, a, cor- oh, yeah, yeah. a, a cordoned-off area of this casino, you would have this big televised cribbage match, like a round-robin. And then I thought, that's the Newfoundlander of me, isn't it? Because it's very much an English heritage tradition-type game that's come down into Newfoundland, and I grew up playing it, and I love it. And I just kind of wanted... I think it would be cool to see a crib game. And Roger Moore's Bond is going to be the one to do it, isn't he? Yeah, yeah that would, he would make the most sense out of any of them. I mean, he Roger would, yeah. Moore played backgammon, right? So yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, I'm just saying, I think it could happen. Awesome, did man. You guys yeah. Think that it felt so? Did you think it felt like a Connery Bond story as oh, well? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Definitely, because the 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 French castle at the start, the Loire Valley. Um, very much, very much a Connery film. The Umbrella, even I can see Connery pulling that. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I mean, it has strokes of Thunderball's opening too, right? So yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking yeah. of that when I was writing it, but you know what? I love Shinon Castle and I love, I, one place oh, I awesome. wanted to go all my life is I want to go see that castle just because if you see pictures of like the castle and the town below mm-hmm. and, and then the bend of the river and stuff, it just looks incredible. And yeah. uh I like the like I like the whole d- dialogue between the the Englishman and the Frenchman about the past history too, and how this the story is about you know like about history in a way too because you have like uh you have like the communist like so the Russian background and then you have like the Irish background where the Irish mm-hmm. were also like a victim of the English as well mm-hmm. so it, it's mm-hmm. just I think that just connects thematically oh, and I can I can see just a writer like Robert Town for example who did Chinatown yeah I can uh-huh. see. I can see him, you know, kind of taking that story and, and molding it a little bit, you know, from Fleming's original manuscript, quote unquote. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the yeah, that's, cool. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Right, Mister Chapman, you are on the stage, my friend. Okay, it's time okay, for so... us to hear our third and <sighs> final. Scott's 
was was going to be, you know, what it was. I knew that he was going to go all out and, you know, and I wanted to see his love for Roger Moore and I totally got that in that. So that was great. But now I want to see uh, what Brosnan is, is up to. Yeah, let's see. What is Brosnan up to, my friend? Well, so, yeah, so uh, the Bond that I chose was Brosnan. Um, so, and the, that time period would obviously be anywhere between 95 and uh, 2003. So I actually mm-hmm. chose 2004. Uh, and what I'm hoping is that uh-huh. this film did so well that uh, Brosnan signed on for another three. So there is actually <laughs> going to Excellent. be no casino. Who knows? I love it. Uh, <laughs> so the title of my Bond is... Um, uh, James Bond Operation Achilles Shield. Now, mm. I did have some help uh, from a, a former roommate uh, and podcaster, uh, <laughs> Josh uh, Josh Taylor, uh, for some of the Greek references uh, and uh, some overall geography and uh, history okay. for this. Ultimately, okay, so I'm just going to read you uh, the pre-title sequence, um, and uh, we'll go from there if that's all right. Awesome. The pre-title sequence uh, takes place on a white sand beach called Parlia Pacha in Greece. Uh, an aged Melina Havlock is on a white boat. Uh, yes, named... I love it already. I love it the already. Name of the, boat, the name of the boat is Roger Me. <laughs> that a throwback. Years. What happened to the Triana? I guess she got her own yacht afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's, so she's she's just looking off the coast, sort of watching. You know, uh, looks like she's on vacation, and uh, but she's actually watching uh, another boat in the distance. And uh, it's like uh, they're swapping. Uh, looks like they're swapping cargo. And then um, Bond's on board with her, and he's uh, he's drinking some champagne. Uh, but the boat that she was watching is actually full of eco terrorists. Um, and actually, they were they had just stolen a, a piece of antiquity for the the leader of the the group, and uh, so they they see this person and and they basically uh, they want to go after it because they don't want any loose ends, and uh, they actually uh, kill Milena. They shoot her. Oh, and, yeah. And Bond is beside himself. So I, I do want to just give a little bit of background. So. Um, the villain for my Bond, uh, his name is Erasmus Scoliantis, so he's half British, half Greek. Uh, he name. is in charge. He is in charge of a. Uh, so he's an eco terrorist, uh, and he's uh, he's a very intelligent, um, you know, uh, philosopher that kind of stuff. But he's actually a flat earther. And his and his <laughs> and his okay. eco terrorist organization right. is called Fear, which stands for Flat Earth, um, um, resistance. Uh, sorry, armed resistance. Okay, <laughs> the Flat Earth armed resistance. Yeah, fear. That, that is God, awesome. That is <laughs> incredible. Yep. And so what the so the boat that she the Milena uh, fatally had been watching was um, one of his and they had actually just stolen a piece of antiquity because uh, Scoliantis likes to collect flat earth antiquities and this was actually a piece of the shield of Achilles uh, which is being housed in a museum in Kanakali, Turkey which is very close to that part of Greece it's not that far away Uh, anyways to get back to what was happening was that uh, the the boat full of the 
henchman who had killed Milena was uh, they basically they killed her and then Bond um, had reached for his Walter PPK and shot back at them, uh, of course in vain, and uh, she ended up dying on the on the boat and. Uh, so and this is where he basically he wants revenge and this is and this is where I would cue the the title sequence mm-hmm. um, and one thing I want to mention is that the boat for Scoliantis is called uh, Fear Atune and that is actually if, if there's any listeners that listen to Terry Pratchett um, that is a reference to the turtle of which the disc world rests upon alright because yeah. the disc because I love the disc world and that's actually I was just thinking like that's what made me think of flat earth and i was like yeah just very cool, cool. yeah so there. nice one uh okay so then after the uh hey the sorry, titles... sorry to interrupt you i was oh, just i was oh, just thinking course. melina's parents died on a boat too didn't they that's correct very very thematic. interesting very thematic yeah uh and so uh the next scene would be in uh london in mi6 uh in m's office and uh it's m and uh uh, a gentleman named uh, Steve Bilson, who is uh, a Canadian attaché for the High Commission, um, hmm. for the British High Commission. Uh, he's he's in the Canadian. Uh, sorry, they don't have embassies; they have High Commissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's he's uh, he's working with the, the British. Uh, he's uh, basically he's CSIS, okay, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, he's so allowed he, to be because uh, CSIS exists in, in this time. At this point, yes, yes, that's correct. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so they're 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 just they're talking, and then Bond walks in through the office, and uh, he actually throws a Greek fisherman's hat on the hat. Uh, <laughs> nice the, one, yeah, nice touch. And uh, winks at Money Penny, goes right in. Uh, obviously, Bond uh, wants revenge, and uh, and so he had noticed. So I mean, the, he wasn't there to to watch any of that when that happened, but he wants revenge, and he wanted to know what. You know what was going on, and so um, they had. He was. He had told M uh, what was going on, and so uh, M had brought in this Canadian. In truth, there is actually uh, a flat Earth society in Canada, and there was uh, quite a large grouping of people back in the seventies. And so uh, Canada does know a little bit about it, and from the intelligence they had gathered, uh, Canada has been following this guy. Uh, did Dan Brown write about the flat earthers? Mm. I'm just thinking, Jeff, did Dan Brown, I don't know. Dan Brown write about the flat earthers? Like, it's, to it's me, possible. to me, they go along with the Priory of Zion or something like Honestly, that. Honestly, yeah, you'd think so, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, Bilson, his name is Steve Bilson, and which in no way is anywhere close to William Stevenson at all. Mm. Uh, so. No, not, not, not the spy, not the spy. <laughs> not at I all. I would of you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So basically, um, Bilson is is working with uh, M, and they get down to speed of of what, who this Scoliantis is, and sort of what's his MO. Uh, You know, that he collects flood earth antiquities. Uh, He's in charge of an eco terrorist group called Fear. Uh, They also had mentioned that, uh, because he does collect antiquities, they had mentioned that. there's actually a showing of a famous piece of flat earth antiquity, uh, a book called the Hunan Zhu, which is actually uh, a book about flat earth, a Chinese. It's like a collective group of stories from 120 BC, which is true. Yeah. Um, and, it's be, and it's at the uh, the London, uh, the British Museum in London. 
So they they figured that um, he's probably going to be there. So uh, M asked him to go and check it out. And uh, the other thing is, uh, I, I just want to give a background. So for, with uh, Scalantis, uh, he he's hell bent on collecting all these antiquities, but he's also got a, a thorn to pick because of all of his colleagues from his uh, his school uh, and uh, in previous work had made fun of him for his flat Earth. So he's basically just crazy. He wants to get uh, revenge at all right, of them. Yeah, you're right. And so he he's basically I mean he's a terrorist. So he's going around. He collects all this stuff, and he also uh, is going around just killing people, revenge, saying, "Hey, hey, you think I'm so stupid? Well, mm-hmm. look at this. I'm gonna have the last laugh. Exactly." Can I ask you, buddy, um, see when he's talking to M, right? When Bond's talking to M and, and he's obviously wanting revenge, does does M sanction this job and send him off to this symposium or whatever on the basis of that kind of revenge request? Or is it also uh, in in the nation's interest, if you see what I mean? I think it's 60-40. Okay. I think, yeah. he, I think he realizes that he sanctions it because it, it – like if it wasn't – if it didn't have as much – uh, of the the nation's like security uh, like in, interest and he probably wouldn't have let him do it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you mean yeah. she right she yes she. yeah <laughs> she yes um so there's a there's a showing at the british museum for this uh piece of antiquity and uh bond will go there and uh he'll basically he's going to reconnoiter and see if he can see if if because he figures he's going to be there uh the other thing is that the, the main aspect of this is that when he was talking to Bilson is that there's actually a summit in uh, in Whistler, BC um, for the for a uh, environmental summit. And the, the the other thing is once when they were looking into uh, Scoliantis, one of his uh, ex colleagues and uh, is known that he kind of had a thing for, her, but she totally like threw him to the wind was a Selena Greenbaum, the president of the United Nations Environmental Assembly. And there's going to be a summit in uh, Whistler in four days' time. So basically, they figured that he may also go there. So then that's why they're they're working together with Canada, because they've been looking into this as well. Mm-hmm. So Bond ends up going to the museum. And uh, when he gets there, um, he's there undercover. But uh, Scoliantis goes there, and he's with. Uh, and he, what he does is he actually organizes his uh, his followers, his fear um, agents, as a protest, uh, and they're protesting China because China is hosting the the uh, the showing, and they're protesting China and their and their pollution, and so he uses his protesters to start a riot. And causes a melee, so then his henchmen can steal the the book. Right. Yeah. And Bond Bond is there as a just as a dignitary, and when he tries to uh, tries to grab it, um, the the henchmen escape. Uh, Bond actually gets uh, gets uh, injured, and they they escape. And he actually crashes. He Bond actually crashes his car. Um, he what happened is he was trying to get to his car. He gets beat up by the by the protesters. Oh dear! tries tries to get into a cab, crashes the cab, but they get anyway. So the, the henchmen get away, and Bond is injured, and he ends up having to go back uh, to MI6 the next day, and he gets he gets reamed out <laughs> by 
by Ambi for uh, you know assaulting a cabbie and and causing all this bodily all this harm and shit. damage and yeah. chaos. Exactly. So basically, when he gets back uh, to uh, MI6, uh, he's then told about what he's going to be doing, and he's going to be going to Canada, and he's told basically what's going to happen again. Uh, so, and then once he's been told the lay of the land and what's going to be happening at the summit, uh, he is then told to go downstairs and speak to Q. Q then shows him what he has available for him what he's going to be using in Whistler. And obviously, because it's Whistler, mm. uh, there will be skiing involved. Nice one. Q gives him a very nice ski jacket. This is kind of a George Costanza joke, if you will. It's Gore-Tex. It's bulletproof. Mm. Uh, up to 50 caliber. Uh, he also gives him an Omega watch with an improved laser and saw. Oh, with, Omega. With, yeah, with, uh, with a removable mm. blade. And he also gives him uh, ski poles that end up being rockets. <laughs> rockets for and, himself or like rocket launchers? Um, like like rock- in Josh's nitro sort of idea or <laughs> projectile yeah. shots? They're like projectile shots. Cool. Exactly. Very cool. Okay. As well as goggles that are also infrared but also are sort of like um, camera. Mm-hmm. So it... I'm not explaining that properly, but... Uh, no, I got you. I got you perfectly. <laughs> Built-in camera in the goggles. Built-in camera yeah, in goggles. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, also, the big the big one here is the BMW M5, uh, which is sort of like the concept, the 2004 concept. Right, okay. Of course, it's bulletproof. It's got rocket thrusters. And it does actually have wings that fold up from the ho- uh, from the roof and Ooh. from the, the, the trunk, which I believe is the boot. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Because the, yes. the bonnet is the hood. Okay, that's right. Yeah, so. bonnet's a hood, boots a trunk. <laughs> uh, he's also given a Walther uh, PPQ, which is a full auto. Ooh, okay, I, we haven't seen the PPQ, have we? I don't. Th- well, to be honest, it does look like the one I think he has in Torn Never Dies. Oh, I it's thought that a was a PP9. Shape. Oh, yeah, that was the PP9. Oh, you're right. I think yeah. Yes, but the, the PP correct. the PPQ looks kind of like it though. Yes, it does. Yeah, you're right. I'll check. I'll check uh, and, it out later. But yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Um, so he, so Bond goes back to M's office. Billson mentions that he will liaise with a, uh, an RCMP officer there. Um, mm-hmm. when he gets there, he's going to land in Montreal at the Mirabel Airport in a private MI6 G6. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's there, um, he's just waiting to refuel. When he gets there, he's uh, he's greeted with, uh, in a limo by Double uh, Four, who just hands him. Um, a local delicacy, a poutine, and says, just try this. <laughs> just because, huh? Just because. Yeah, right? why not? Look, it, it if makes you're in Montreal and you don't, and you don't, yeah. I know that it's, uh, it might not necessarily be on bonds. <laughs> and once, and then basically the refuel, he flies to the Ottawa airport. He's greeted by two black SUVs with RCMP Secret Service. Inside that is his RCMP um, liaison that is uh, that has been uh, prepped by CSIS and MI6. Her name is Kelowna Drake. Kelowna, uh, as in with, with a K, with a K, <laughs> with a K, with a K. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, that's a good. That's a good name. There you go. That's cool. Uh, I did that for you. And, yeah. Um, and then they drive from the Ottawa airport uh, to the British High Commission on Elgin Street. From there, they speak to the military attaché, who's uh, a Lieutenant Colonel Alistair McDonald. 
Oh, you went McDonald, okay? We went McKenzie. <laughs> That's all right. But, he, but he's British. He's not Canadian because they're in the High Commission. Right, of course, uh, yes. And basically, they go over the who's who and what's going to happen. Uh, Bond's uh, who his what his um, cover is going to be, and uh, and who Drake's going to be to him. And basically, uh, they go over who fear is, and then they talk about wh what they figure is going to happen. They have a good idea because they've been following fear and, and Scoliantis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the colonel wants to go and go for a drink, so they go over to the Chatelore, which is just a quick jaunt, which is also where uh, Bond will be staying. Bond hits it off with Drake. Of course, nothing happens because she doesn't let it happen. <laughs> good. No, not yet. Good. Not yet. Um, and then they mentioned that, uh, so again, they go over more of the details there at, at the Chateau Laurier. Um, he, but again, he tries to, you know, have her doesn't work, but he does, however, get some room service from the, the hotel concierge named Selene and he gets some room service. Mm, okay. What is that a euphemism? Yes. Yeah. Sure it, is. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. This is Brosnan, uh, after all. Yours. Is that like Michael Scott when he went to Canada? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 uh, that was in Regina, though, but anyway. Yeah, so he wakes up with Celine. Uh, <laughs> so I guess she did a night shift, I guess. So is that what call overnight mm -hmm, overnight mm -hmm. shift, yeah. Uh, he goes uh, just to the, just let me let me point out love. just let me point out before Sorry. we forget that yes. the the Chateau Laurier by the way I know we're kind of zooming past this stuff but yeah. it, it's kind of it, it's an often perhaps if you visited the city like it it can be quite overlooked because it's so beautiful and because it's so it's so fixed there in the city but it's actually a fantastic constructed building isn't oh, it Oh it's amazing like it really is an awesome place to have It's fantastic Yeah it really is I was lucky enough to actually work a conference there for a week. Nice. Uh, years ago, and it was just really fun to fun just going in there and, mm -hmm. and just being a part of it, and especially with all those like the original photos by Karsh, um, um, you know, all the like the famous like those were those were all those famous photos of uh, Churchill and, and um, uh, mm -hmm. my goodness, what's his name? The well, there was a, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there all was, those famous big photos summit were, there, wasn't were, there? were taken were taken there by yeah. Kirsch because he had an apartment. He had a penthouse apartment in the top. It's an awesome place to hear. Yeah. It's it's very nice, uh, and I thought yeah, it works because if they're at the British High Commission, it's literally like a three minute walk. Like yeah, you know. yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah. um, and, so so uh, is the Byward Market. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, they can go to, uh, yeah, they can go to the honest lawyer if this is two thousand and six, <laughs> which would still be there. Which would yeah. still be there, yeah. Right, yeah. Be the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, man, I'm taking you off. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> honest uh, lawyer was yeah. a uh, haunt that uh, Jeff yeah. and me uh, and our friends used to go to yeah. in, in in Ottawa. Uh, the last time I checked. I think from uh, an apart from a uh, hotel room, a friend of ours had booked out for his birthday. From the balcony, you could oh, yeah, see. Oh yeah, we stayed like, in the could... Chateau Laurier. No, 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 not the Chateau Laurier, but we stayed in an apartment building in a, in a hotel. I forget what I forget what the name of it was. The Suites. The Suites. Yeah, it was this Les Suites. Anyways, from our balcony, which was very high up, we could see the rubble of the honest lawyer like down below. Oh yeah, because it was like yes, yes, bulldozed yes. to pieces, like. It was quite an eyesore from high up above, right? But mm. yep. yeah. To keep going, sorry. Bond is going back to the airport now after being, uh, again, sort of briefed with uh, the colonel 
and Drake. And they go back to the outer airport, and then they fly to, from there, they fly to Vancouver. And uh, so Scoliantis is currently flying in his private jet to BC as well, going over the plans with his henchmen and his operatives at a long conference table and through teleconference with the rest of his agents that he has uh, in British Columbia. Does anybody uh, he... drop out like they did in the blimp? <laughs> in uh, in uh, Aftac? A Japanese, yeah, there's actually a Japanese businessman who's not who's not on board. <laughs> he's not on board with the plan. Literally. He's not a flat earther. Yeah, he's not, no. Yeah. Well, he's definitely flat, and he hit the earth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so basically, what Scolantis is planning is that he's planning on the day of the conference. And, the, and on top of this, this is why it all kind of comes together, is that the last piece of the shield of Achilles is actually being shown at the conference, ironically enough. How about that plot? Very cool. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> but also the person who's in charge, like I said, the person in charge of the summit was his sort of ex-crush and the person that really sort of uh, dashed his dreams and uh, he just wants revenge is the Selena Greenbaum, the president of the uh, United Nations uh, Environmental Assembly. So what he's planning to do is he's actually going to, again, cause sort of a ruckus with some protesters. He's going to make a speech. And, uh, and then he's actually planning to uh, cause an avalanche <laughs> oh, goodness. And, and destroy the whole place. That's what he'd like to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's his plan. So um, cut to Bond and uh, Drake, actually. And so at this point, they've already they've, they've gone to Vancouver, but right now they're just actually being dropped by a helicopter in the village of Whistler. And their car will be... Uh, dropped off with all the gadgets to their uh, hotel when they're staying in the uh, in the Fairmont uh, Whistler as well. Okay, nice. I've, I've always wanted to stay there, so I'm like, why not? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so then, uh, and then when he gets in, he gets there and the car is waiting, um, Drake says, hey, you know what? Since you're a guest of my country, I'm going to drive you around. Also, she just wants to drive the damn car. Mm-hmm. And can you blame uh, her? No, you definitely can't blame no, her. No, that's, that's the M5, right? Yes. That yeah, exactly. you gotta, you yep. got to want to have a go with that. The, the exactly. BMW promotion continues. Yeah, yeah exactly. So they get to the, the hotel and they have adjoined rooms. Uh, and then, of course, Bond mistakenly uh, opens the door and uh, <laughs> finds finds Drake looking at Intel on her laptop in a teddy. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah. and uh, by, Bond very tries... Very comfortable for looking at Intel. Yeah, right? very comfortable. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, of course, she plays hard to get, and, uh, and then yada, he yada, eventually... Yada, 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 yeah. <laughs> one thing I did forget to mention is uh, one little thing is that when she gets in the M the M5, she gives him a little gift of a little beaver and puts it on the, <laughs> <laughs> the mirror. Uh, that, like, uh, uh, that's a calling card for later in the evening, right? Here's my beaver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're going to yeah. put this on the dash. Oh, my. Yeah. And so this is where, where, where that's uh, good. Pierce Brosnan kind of has a Roger Moore. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, your, your, your Pierce Brosnan bond tends to be quite horny. <laughs> he seems to be a bit of a sex pest. Man. <laughs> like, uh, we've got, you was. know, and, uh, keep going. This is great. 
Okay. So, ah, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, they're looking over the intelligence, and then, you know, uh, and one thing leads to another, and, uh, yeah. So uh, he ends up getting with Drake. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the morning, there's a knock at the door, and it's uh, it's room service, and it's actually one of uh, Scolantis' uh, operatives. Her name is uh, Alira Strange. She's an, uh, an ex-Olympian Taekwondo uh, gold medalist. She's a New Zealander, and uh, she's also crazy. Of course. And, of course. Uh, uh, Bond recognizes her from the British Museum, and she was one of the agents that was going after him. And the thing is, is he's in a bathrobe, and so she literally kicks him in the nuts. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and she... She and she runs away, and he tries to grab his gun. And I mean, like he actually has his gun in his bathrobe. Of course, he does. Anyways. I'm just picturing this woman running into like <laughs> uh, into the room and kicking Bond in the crotch. No, she was in the hallway. She was in the hallway. She he didn't let her in. She's like a vampire. She didn't. She wasn't allowed in, so she didn't come in. He opened the Ooh, door. <laughs> Exactly. Um, <laughs> you brought me back uh, to that that bellboy in the man with the golden gun. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep, exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, uh, okay, and then they basically uh, they get a call. So Bond collects himself, mm-hmm. uh, gets a call on his cell. It's M and Bilson on a on a conference call telling him that Scoliantis is in the village uh, and that he's already confronted uh, Greenbaum, who he actually basically uh, kidnapped, but clandestinely. And he was basically telling her what's going to happen. All they know is that he, they had, they had seen him take her. They're like, okay, so we got to do something, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so then this is the day of the, the conference. Uh, M and Bilson call Bond and Drake. They mentioned that uh, Sclantis is in the village. He's confronted Greenbaum. And then they have to get going because the conference is starting soon and they need to be in place. Sclantis' mm-hmm. uh, plan is already on the move where he has already got his operatives to start to amass at the conference, where again they'll do a similar thing, where they're going to have protesters. Their his agents are going to show up as protesters, as long as the other people that are there to watch. And by the way, he has a hovercraft that is good for snow. Oh, He's very going, cool! And his protesters agents are going to split the crowd like Moses in the Red Sea. He's going to walk <laughs> through. He's going to say a speech. He's going to grab Selena. And the shield of uh, Achilles. Agents, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the shield. Oh, right, 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 right. Of course, he's going to actually take the artifact too. Yeah, he's going to take the artifact. Yeah, of course and he is. He's, and he's basically, yeah, exactly. One other thing I wanted to mention is that one of his uh, operatives has like a, a bomb vest, and so he's going to basically blow himself up and cause the avalanche or part of it. So Scoliantis is basically telling the whole world his plan here and he's about to detonate it and Bond and Drake jump into action. Drake gets shot by the operative Billy Haas who has the blast vest. Bond Mm -hmm. chases after Scoliantis and uh, melee ensues because of the protesters and the rioters and and, uh, 
there's like they're shooting up all the people inside the conference. Uh, Scoliantis gets in the hovercraft. Bond chases after him, gets into his car, and uh, they're chasing down the road. Scoliantis gets uh, goes off the road up the mountain. Bond then hits uh, the button on the dashboard that opens up the wings, and now it flies. Very cool. Yeah, wow. here we go. Yeah. <laughs> It's more and, believable uh, than him flying, like, uh, you know. On a parasail? Yeah, on a yeah, parasail, exactly. being chased by, like, exactly. some sort of a sun-powered satellite weapon. Oh, right. God. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, exactly. So, uh, Scalantis has the the piece of the shield and and green bomb in the car. Bond is trying to figure out, like, okay, I have to, get, I have to stop this before he blows up everything. So, he actually crashes the the BMW into the hovercraft, mm. uh, and so there's and, and it's sort of like a car crash on the side of a mountain, but it's flat enough that they don't all roll off. He gets out, Scolantis gets out, has Green Bomb, actually kills her, throws her off the mountain, uh, and he's holding ooh. the piece. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just said ooh. I think he, so he oh, just kills oh, her and throws say? her. He kills her yeah. and throws her. Yeah. Yes, he okay. does. And uh, so he, ha- and then he still has the piece of the shield of uh, Achilles, and uh, and Bond uh, realizes, okay, what do I, what do I do here? Uh, so we, and uh, at this point, he does have his coat on, because uh, he was afraid he was going to get shot because he has a bulletproof <laughs> jacket, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. He goes into the jacket, grabs, uh, he has a little knob which actually is uh, buttoned to have the rockets uh the ski poles turn into rockets oh okay here they come here they come yeah and but so again he has a button he presses that ski pole rockets and also the skis out of the shoes because scoliantis is trying to get away so he's actually skiing after him and when he presses the button for the ski pole it Basically, it skewers him, and he goes up into the atmosphere. <laughs> okay. Okay. So he's being right. dragged into the atmosphere with the ski pole rocket, <laughs> and then he sees that the world is. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, he gets. Yeah, that's the worst and thing of all. His last, his last breath is realizing that the world is round, and he drops the piece of the shield of Achilles and dies. <laughs> Bond then decides to ski down the hill and make sure that Drake is okay. He sees her, and he's got his goggles on because he found her through the goggles. Uh, grabs her. Right, so yeah, she, the goggles. She's bleeding, but she has her coat on. And so Bond... Oh, I actually have a line. He actually wrote this. Um, All you got to do is translate it. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, he grabs her. He sweeps her off her feet. Uh, and on his skis and he's like now um let's enjoy these wonderful mountains <laughs> <laughs> yes that was his line <laughs> that was his line and and just then as he's enjoying both types of mountains mm-hmm, mm-hmm, skiing mm-hmm. down the hill uh m decides to video call him of course he does goggles. of course <laughs> and then all you hear is 007 <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. I like that. I like that. I think what we, you and I had to do, I think we have to switch our bonds, though. I know. I think, yeah, you're right. I realize that now. Yeah. I think you, I think if you and I did our switch, and of course, no, nah, but we couldn't because it is very much what, what you say is true. Like, it is a Brosnan gadgetry story, though. 
It is. Like yes. you need you need that. Like also late Brosnan as well. Yeah. yeah that's like, like, so I feel like Brett Ratner would have directed this. So it's a bit ridiculous. <laughs> no, I thought it was awesome. I like the um, I, I like the sort of little pieces there you put in with the uh, the, the the Greek history. I, I, I certainly hadn't thought of doing that and um, bringing Melina into it. I was but killing her off though. Ugh. Yeah, that's a bit harsh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, is I was trying to think like. I didn't necessarily want to use Spectre, and I was trying to think of something, and I was like, "What the hell could I even like flatter?" And like that's and I was the flat earthers. I, that's really clever. I, just I like thought that. it was random. Like it's kind of funny, but I'm like, "What? What? What the hell kind of acronym?" And I'm like, "Fear." And I'm that's like, awesome. "I don't know." Like, okay. <laughs> uh, and I, I did kind of have. I wrote this thing where he ha- he was going to use his uh, laser on his watch to cut up one of the the henchmen, and he was gonna. She was like. Uh, she was going to fight him, but she was going to say, watch this, and she was going to kick him. And he's like, time is not on your side, and he was going to cut her in half with his laser. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. But I do think it's quite clever, you know, having the protesters also, like, agents, because people would allow protesters yeah. near sites <laughs> if they were going to protest cleanly, right? And then, of course, once they're set, once they're situated in, they can become the threat that they are. That's, that's quite cool. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so who I had thought to do the song was The Killers. And it was oh, called yeah, cool. A Shield of Achilles. Shilly, Shield of Achilles. Yeah. Shield of Achilles by The Killers. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. And what <laughs> kind of song would it be? Would it be a slow or would it be a hard and heavy? Well, the thing is, it, no, it would be kind of, uh, and this is no Adam Sandler pun, but it, at a medium bass. At a medium song. pace. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh, so it's not like yeah, it's not like a Mr. Brightside, but it's also mm. not like a, uh, it's not like a, a slow killer song. But I think they could probably pull it off, especially in 2004. Uh, I think they would they they could uh, they you know they're pretty high up. It was yeah, between sure. them with the Strokes, and mm-hmm, I was like, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like maybe this could be the uh, the killers. To be honest, the one I was going to choose right up until the end, other than that, was going to be The Cure. Because The Cure, we're still putting out albums, so I can still use The Cure. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's you know, it's really uh, it's neat to think of all the killers doing a Bond song because they they could they could do one. Brenda Flowers could do it because even oh, yeah, if it wasn't the killers, Brenda mm-hmm. Flowers could do it. And because yeah, he's so sure. multifaceted and he, he he can go all over the place, so that's why I thought you know what this could work. Yeah, yeah, definitely post Casino Royale too. Like those kind of artists would be more accepted after Cornell, right? Yeah, um, yeah. For Bond songs, like every every decade, like the standard for what a Bond song can can be has changed right because of very much different trends and and you know what's expected right mm-hmm. exactly now i wanted a villain who you know like a, a typical kind of bond villain but and this guy was different where he was i mean he's an eco-terrorist but he also kind of had like uh you know his machinations of why he wanted revenge because people mm-hmm. made fun of him because of flat earth but then he you know i like uh, that side of things because yeah, i mean a lot of bond villains do have that you just you just made fun of me like there's a real fra- frailty to their their ego you know and uh yeah i, I buy that just, i buy that it was like kind a of video fun just... of uh, obama roasting trump and the look on yeah. trump's face and people saying you know that's the birth of a supervillain right there you know what well, i mean yeah mm-hmm. exactly and i just i thought it was i i, I mean i thought it was kind of fun just sort of researching like flat earth stuff and finding mm-hmm. like legit antiquities that at least this this could sort of make him a little more respectable in the sense of like, well, okay, he's crazy and he has a terrorist organization about Flat Earth, but he also understands history and he's mm-hmm. like, you know, and he collects this stuff. And 
So I just thought that was kind of fun too. But, and it does uh, open up that world of antiquity that's so nice to see on film too, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah. I mean, this, this was just kind of, I mean, this was just a fun, I didn't, I didn't really write, I guess, like a, a serious Bond film, but it was fun to do. <laughs> it was fun. It was good to listen to. Hey, I, I like what we've done here today. I've enjoyed this yeah. quite a bit. I think we've, and we've all got features in, in, in our stories that would work and could be expanded upon and, you know, <laughs> it's it of course it's silly but it's been fun and it's it's been a good i think it's been good therapeutically you know if you look at the world around us right now just to kind of do something creative and although our show is about doing different things and creative things and i don't think we've had any shortage of that this season particularly with our roulette led episodes and things like that this was something different and i think it was good and, and healthy and, uh... healthy and good for the brain yeah and Absolutely. reactionary like it's just like it's all reaction, yeah you know like we're just going from like we're just kind of kind of like pioneering it and trying to come up with new ideas mm -hmm. i really enjoy uh doing stuff like that and uh yeah i, I kind of had my feeling about how this episode would turn out and mm -hmm. I, I think it's been fun and i think it really been, has yeah it's been good yeah, fun and i yeah, would like, say you know guys on top of that each of our stories also do, you know, strip away the silliness or, or the, the fan fiction, fanboyiness of all of this. Our, our episodes, or sorry, our stories do communicate the truth that there's a lot of stuff in Canada that's worth filming. And there's a lot of oh, potential yeah, geographically, culturally, that's worth tapping into. And let's let's get something happening in Canada. You know, I mean, I know Barbara Broccoli listens to us. I mean, she's she's communicated with us on multiple occasions now. Of course she has. And yeah. I, I would just like to say... Barbara, Barb, I mean, I believe she let, lets us call her that. Barb, please, come come to Canada. Come on, let's yeah. get this sorted. I mean, get it let's sorted. be honest. If, there, if it wasn't for a certain Canadian, William Stevenson, we wouldn't have That's had, a very good point, I mean, Mr. Chapman. Know, like, there mm. might not be a bond. That's a good point, and, and that's not And that's not just us saying that. I mean, that's Ian Fleming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Quite right. So, uh, so I mean, you know. Yeah, nailed it. Uh, let us know. Let us know what you think of our three stories, Josh. Once again, the brave and the bold, starring Sean Connery from 1967. Jeff Chapman, your story is James Bond, Operation Achilles Shield, 2000. Starring Pierce Brosnan, and my. I like how you put the James Bond. Right <laughs> the title yeah, I like that That's too. Original. I do That's like original. that. It is. <laughs> and my story from 1976. It's Goodwill Goodbye, starring Roger Moore. <laughs> Or some version of him, at least. <laughs> Gentlemen, what, what good fun this has been. Um, thanks again for your efforts this week. I think the extra week served us well. <laughs> it, it did. It, it uh, allowed the creativity to expand and uh, grow, I guess you could say. Ferment. Ferment, ferment. <laughs> ferment. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're enjoying the, uh, the draft right now. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you've had fun with us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode for you. But uh, for now, take care of yourselves. And, um, yeah, just uh, keep smart and keep healthy. Yeah. Au revoir, boys. Cheers. <laughs>